Welcome to the show. Before I get into this week's conversation, I want to reiterate what I said on last week's intro about people who have asked me about making a one-time payment to the podcast. Although Patreon doesn't exactly allow for a one-time payment option, there is a workaround. Subscribe to the Crude Patreon and then cancel your subscription once you've received an email confirmation that your payment has been successfully processed. That way, you're only paying the amount you've pledged for one month. You can do this as well as subscribe to the Crude Patreon at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, on to this week's episode. In this one, guest host Whitney Branshaw and I have a conversation with retired Marine and pararescueman Roger Sparks. In 2010, Roger was part of Operation Bulldog Bite 2 Charlie, a heavy firefight with insurgents in the Waterper Valley in Afghanistan. The fight was, as Roger puts it, surreal. He talks about how, after the fight, he was in such disbelief that he checked Wikipedia for proof that the fight actually happened. For his part, he was awarded the Silver Star, one of the highest awards for valor in combat you can receive from the United States Armed Forces. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout-out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Carly Mortensen, and Alaska Surf Adventure. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. Back to Roger Sparks. After a 25-year-long career in Special Forces, Roger is now a tattoo artist and author. It's taken him a long time to be where he is now, with the understanding and the self-analysis that comes with soul-searching. His perspective is a reflection of a life spent in uncomfortable situations, be it as a recon marine, an Air Force pararescueman, or a tattoo artist. Because, as he puts it, if you're risking virtuously, it leads to better and more things. So here he is, Roger Sparks. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Time flies when you're having fun. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Roger. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we started recording, when I was setting up and you and Whitney were talking, you were talking about swimming with great whites with Laird Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah, this stuff just falls out of my mouth sometimes. Um, But uh, yeah, so uh, I don't even know how we started talking about that. What were we talking about? Swimming. You're going to Bali. You're going going to Bali. You you are going to Bali. Talking about the Bali trip. Yep. Um. But yeah, so um, that's kind of like the end of the story, I guess, in some way that I'm shark diving with Laird Hamilton, you know, but, you know, there's many other great, you know, kind of not celebrities because I wouldn't, but, uh, and I, and to be honest, like, I don't know who any celebrities are. I mean, I've met, you know, A-list actors and I was like, oh, okay, that's, uh, you know, that's who that is or, um, but, uh, 
if they don't have context to me, it's like I don't like I'm not really starstruck. Like I, I don't feel like you can star strike me, you know. And and uh, I mean, I live in Alaska. I don't watch TV. I just wake up early and do push-ups out in a field, you know. I mean, I, you know, it's like I'm a really simple kind of guy. But I do get all that that culture. But uh, I tell you, man, uh, doing the shark diving thing. I knew I was shark diving, but I was only told, "Hey, man, uh, you need to get a room at a hotel." in uh you know on the border of tijuana and you're gonna hang out and uh we're gonna we're gonna pick you up we're gonna go shark diving and i'm like okay i mean i literally didn't know if we were gonna get on uh you know a boat or we're gonna do this like on a liveaboard or what the deal was or or if we're just gonna take you know are they chum in the water we just do day trips Mm -hmm. and i know i'm gonna it's just that's a very loaded statement i went shark diving with laird hamilton because there's there's so much more to it than that you know (laughs) but uh I was given uh, the hotel address on the border of Tijuana in a specific time just to be outside drinking coffee. And I did that. You know, it's like the first day I kind of got there a little early because, you know, when you fly from Alaska, uh, the time is always screwed up to where you're going. You're either really early to what you're going to go do or you're really late. You're going to be jet lagged, you know, Mm because everything's a red eye, you know. So, but I got in and, uh, I've spent a lot of time there. You know, I was in the Marine Corps and uh, as, as a young Marine, I spent a lot of time, you know, at California, Tijuana border there, you know. And uh, so, I, I mean, I was, I went and got me some street tacos. I was hanging out and, you know, I was enjoying it, you know, because I mean, in Alaska, we do have kind of Tex-Mex, you know, like uh, I love Serrano's man. Mm-hmm. props to those guys, but it's like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, 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 I grew up, I grew up in uh, Fort Worth, you know, in, in, in Dallas, Texas. And so, you know, Tex-Mex is like the staple of my life, you know, and, and uh, but I love going down there and eating like Cali Mexican, you know, what I mean, like, like Tijuana street food is amazing. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, so I was eating chow and, uh, but uh, yeah, I showed up and I'm standing there with my, my shitty, you know, best Western coffee, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm waiting and all of a sudden, man, a brand new, like Range Rover, like Land Rover pulls in front, brand new, man. And it was like a color, like I can't even explain. It was like a, orange but like a pearl orange you know just way out of my class you know just pulls up right now he didn't have didn't have license plate you know and this guy pulls up and i'm like man who the hell is this because they they came up real close to me you know kind of blazing window rolls down it's laird hamilton and he's like hey are you roger i I was (laughs) like i was like yeah he's like get in we're gonna we're gonna go drive to uh encinitas mexico and we're gonna go just just hop in and i was just like what the fuck <laughs> and I mean, I, and I mean, so okay, you, you starstruck me, man. And I mean, I remember as a young Marine or hell, even like even before then, like whenever I was like in high school seeing what was it? That cheesy ass movie, North Shore. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, that lamest kook movie, but it kind of explains the whole kind of reverse racism, you know, like, you know, the locals hate, you know, the white dudes. Uh, but then years later, you know, like I'm always kind of like trying to find these iconic spiritual guides in my life. And I remember reading, there was like an outside article, like when outside magazine just came out, like they did one on Laird and it was just him living, you know, in Hawaii and all this crazy workout stuff that he was doing. And I was like, that dude's badass, man. I'm like, there's something about that cat. And I just kind of put it away, you know, and I'd always glom onto different dudes like, uh, Mark Twight, you know, these badass alpinists and stuff, you know, and just kind of try to figure out what those dudes are about and start doing whatever they're doing. If you want me to ice climb in my underwear, you know, with no socks, whatever it's like, I'll go do, I'll go do it. I'll figure this <laughs> stuff out. Cause 
I've always tried to kind of push myself physically to where it's metaphysical to, to help myself learn about, you know, things within me or, you know, just within my world. And uh, I like finding kind of like role models or like these spirit guides, you know, with that. And Laird is definitely one of those cats. And so it was just freaking nuts, man. Like I knew I was going to go shark diving. I had no idea it was going to be with Laird Hamilton, you know, but I mean, everybody there was just, you know, old, really badass, you know, and, and uh, they were doing research for PTSD, um, visual based stimulus. And uh, we were basically a uh, couple weeks out on a live aboard and just experiencing uh, uh, the, you know, metaphysical, spiritual aspect of being with those animals, you know, in the water under their circumstances, you know, in, in their environment, you know, and that was really empowering. It was really a cool experience. What did that look like to be among them? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's weird and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. I know you guys got a list of questions and I'm happy to be here all night. If you want to ask me and edit the shit out of this thing, I, I really don't care. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, there's something subtle about, you know, putting yourself in a place that's uncomfortable it's really powerful, I think, to put yourself in uncomfortable places intentionally. You know, interestingly enough, you know, we were talking about saunas, like doing really hot finished saunas. And, Earlier when and, we and, were yeah, here. Yeah, and uh, uh, ice bathing. Mm -hmm. It's You know, it's called contrast therapy. And, and uh, Laird turned me on to that too. But it was in such a very sincere way. Like it's one of the, when you, you know, when you have someone like stop you and look you right in your eye like six inches from your face and say, you need to do this. And they're not saying it because they're projecting themselves on you. They're saying this because they genuinely care about you. He was like, you need to start doing very hot saunas mixed with ice bathing. And you need to do it like almost every day. And, I, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll, you know, and I just kind of planted that seed. Um, so the same benefits of shark diving, there's carryover to, uh, ice bathing, right? Like you can tell me about the physiological things, right? There's measurables to all those things. You know, you can say, well, you know, like diving with sharks, you're going to get, you know, massive adrenaline spike. Your heart rate's going to go through. You can measure all those things, but the, the, the very subjective things are where things get really interesting. The gray areas of life are the things that are very interesting, you know? So, well, what that does now is that 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 empowers you. You faced a visual stimulus of fear, like you truly felt like you were going to die, but you faced it, mm -hmm. and you interacted with it in a way that that empowered you. Same thing with ice, right? Like so, like you can say there's physiological benefit to that. You can say there's you know it's going to increase uh, serotonin, you know, of your brain. Uh, it's going to reduce systemic inflammation. It's going to turn uh, activate brown fats and neural chains and all these things. It's going to do all that stuff. But I think there's a very subtle and powerful ceremony in physically facing something that's very uncomfortable. And I think that that, that that is the real benefit of these things. You know, like when people exercise, it's not, you know, they're not going to get abs of steel by doing that. But it's empowering mm -hmm. because they're, 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 they're kind of pushing the edges of their mortality slightly. And I think that that's a draw to it. That's, that's a benefit of it, I think, you know. But yeah, complete digression for a start of this whole interview is, you know, but you brought it up. I did. <laughs> you, you, you brought up the whole, you know, going to Bali and I was like, oh, surfing and click, click, click. My brain's just going a million miles an hour. Well, that's, I mean, the surfing thing for me, it, uh, it a hundred percent scares the shit out of me because I grew up on the water on boats. And so the way that I learned about water was that it's like a, 
it's a it's a way to sustain, mm. like to have respect for Mother Ocean, right? So I never really played in the ocean mm. much because that's how I made our that's how we made our living. Um, and then I started doing the boar tide, and the boar tide is super freaky, but it's super fun. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got the bug and got my kid involved and was doing all these really interesting things with surfing. And um, that's you know going yeah, that's, to, going that's... to Bali is facing a huge fear for me. Like I'm fucking terrified that I'm gonna die. There. Have you ever? Have you ever uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I don't want to. I'm a strong swimmer. I was varsity swimmer in high school and swam all my younger years, and I. I know myself in that sense, but I am I am quite scared, but in a really good way, you know. Like I'm excited, scared. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that see that is like a pilgrimage, right? Like like yes. you're you're it's a pilgrimage to face this specific fear. You yes, know? yeah, hundred percent. But that's you know like when you're living virtuously, like if you're risking virtuously in that way, like it leads to better and more things, you know, it just keeps, you know, I feel that's why I'm sitting here talking to you guys, you know, it's like just the real subtle virtuous risk, you know? Yeah. What do you think is the importance of being brave? Hmm. Well, I think that if you want to consciously be brave, it's not going to happen. I think that, uh, courage is desperation. I think that, uh, you know, like just let's just take a kid that's abused, right? And he puts a stiff upper lip every day and he goes to school and he does his stuff, you know. Um, you know, courage is something born out of desperation. You know, same thing with men in combat. You know, like uh, it's not that uh, I'm courageous. I'm just scared of, of other things, you know. And so you know, we're all acting out of these, these odd things. So I guess, you know, being brave, you know, I th- you know, if you want to use brave as an analogy of just what we were kind of talking about, of like f- putting yourself intentionally in uncomfortable places, is that brave? Mm. There's a really good author that I read, uh, Tim O'Brien. And Tim O'Brien's, uh, he wrote, you know, the things that they carried. I, I think some high schools, you know, kids read that, which that's pretty. I actually have a question related to that book. It's one of my all-time favorite books. Oh yeah. It, it, it's absolutely amazing. And, uh, he wrote uh, a few really great uh, novels, you know, and they were a cathartic experience for him uh, to write those about, you know, you know, living through his experiences of Vietnam. He was an infantry, army infantry. Uh, I think he wasn't a lieutenant. He was an enlisted guy, I'm pretty sure. But uh, one of, obviously the things they carried is really wonderful because it delves into not only the physical things that a guy's carrying, but the emotional things that, that people carry from those experiences. Uh, but uh, he wrote, "If I die in a combat zone, mm-hmm. that and there's there's a whole chapter on bravery, and I think it's on courage is what it's called." Mm-hmm. And uh, when I read that, I, at that time when I read it, um, I became uh, very enamored with it, and I was in a position within uh, as a pararescueman that, that people would kind of have to appease me. Like if I told you to read this, well, then you need to read it, you know, and I'm going to ask you questions about it. And I literally printed that out on a Xerox mm-hmm. page by page and then made like 20 copies and gave it to everybody in my life. And I was like, you need to read this. And most of the men that I gave that to, they had experienced very surreal combat with me. And so I just think that, uh, you know, the, you know, the words that, that, uh, that Tim O'Brien wrote about on bravery, he, he kind of uses the analogy. There's like a water, Buffalo out in the middle of this field and a, uh, a platoon, uh, had been ambushed and stepped on mines there in the specific area that, 
these guys were beyond themselves and they were kind of at a point of rage, you know, and, uh, they saw, this was a free fire zone specifically where this water Buffalo was. And they saw that there was two boys out in the middle of this field and these guys just opened up on these boys and this water Buffalo. And so he just sat there in horror and just kind of watched it. And he just sat down watching what was happening, but you could hear the men firing at the boys. And then he specifically talks about the, the impacts of the rounds hitting, you know, the water Buffalo. And then he uses, he's like, is the water buffalo courageous because mm-hmm. it's standing there? Are the boys courageous? Are they cowards? Are the, the men that are shooting at them, are they courageous? And I just thought that was so powerful because what is really there in that moment is desperation. And, and uh, through my experiences, I kind of see this stuff constantly, you know, and, and I think that uh, I found a lot of... Uh, uh, healing in the words of uh, like the 16th and 17th century samurai. You know, they wrote a lot of different things and they believed the more desperate a person was, the more valuable they were. And that's very true. I mean, you think about it, like when have you been the most effective in your life? It's when you are the most desperate you've ever been. You know, you get shit done, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you're out of your mind with desperation, you know, and uh, whether it's emotionally, physically, you know, all those things push you to a point to where you're extremely capable. You have something to prove. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I mean, but, but you need, Okay. you know, you need necessity, you know, um, whether that's safety or, or belonging or, uh, but I mean, that, that's an interesting point that you bring up right there, Cody is, is, you know, so, you know, to prove to yourself, you know, something. And I was thinking about that as I was working out this morning, I wake up really early, I take care of my son, I get him to school and then. I mean, this morning it was 15 degrees and I'm out there, you know, running and doing push-ups and bear crawling for like an hour and a half out in the field behind my house. And uh, looking at that almost full moon, it was really high in the sky. Beautiful moon. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, and I was thinking about that. I, I was thinking about desperation. I was thinking about who I am. And I was like, at some point when you get comfortable, you seek being productive. And I was like, well, what am I uncomfortable with? And I think a lot of people who are very... Uh, highly functioning people, they have a lot of, uh, self-loathing, you know, they're doing things out of, out of, I'm never enough, you know, and I definitely feel that with myself and that's a subconscious thing. You know, it's, it's again, like you can't consciously do this, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, um, I mean, all my life I d- I've definitely felt that I've been weaker, less intelligent, uh, you know, I've just been extremely hard on myself. And I read a psychotherapy book years ago, and it was talking about uh, there's two types of people, people that blame others or the situation, or there's people that blame themselves. And the people that blame themselves, they become very highly functioning people. But the thing is that that there's a malleability to us in our character, just like steel, right? So it's like if, if you're too hard on yourself or you're just destructive to yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you can kind of temper that with a soft, yielding, steel and a hard brittle steel that's sharp well then it's like that's very highly functioning but that takes a a certain amount of living i guess to become that aware i think but uh but i was actually thinking about that running this morning i was like i don't feel like i have anything to prove to myself but i feel like i need to taste blood every morning you know like i i need to 
push the edges of my abilities in some way. But that just makes me that just well, it just makes me feel like I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, I feel like I would go insane. And it's I'm not working out because I want to be look fit. I don't want to. Um, I'm not working out towards a goal. It's completely process oriented. Like I'm going out there just to taste blood and stare at the moon when I taste it, you know, to, to feel alive, to feel my heart ripping through my chest, you know. How long did it take you to get to that point? Uh, I guess to the point to where that I feel like I don't have anything to prove. Mm-hmm. Man, probably just, uh, you know, I think it's it's different for each of us. And I think that there's layers to answering that. There's not like a myopic you know, answer to it because there's layers. There's, you know, we have all these different hats. You know, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm a, you know, it's like we all have these different things that we associate with, you know, that, that are responsibilities in our lives or that we kind of place upon ourselves. But I think to always be hungry, you know, I read something, I'm always reading stuff and just taking little things away, like fall forward, like always overextend, always, you know, have your, uh, uh, reach exceed your grasp, you know, like always just fall on your face, you know, because that's, that's growing. It's when you're comfortable, you're not living, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, it's cool. You know, we're at a good place right now, you know, and I could get really comfortable, but I don't, I don't want to, you know, like I, you know, not to keep throwing cheesy analogies out there, but, uh, what was that on, uh, what was that Shawshank Redemption? Get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you see these people. Well, what is living and what's dying? And, and living, I think, is taking risk. It's taking, whether it's you're trying to take safe risks or you're taking big risks. It's like that Zen proverb where you jump and the net appears. You have to take the risk. We can't see what our tomorrow is, but you have to, like, you have to scare yourself a little every day. I, mm-hmm. I tell my son Oz, I'm driving him to school, you know, and Oz is, 15. Uh, he's got cerebral palsy. He's nonverbal. He's got type one diabetes, but he's got, he's, he, there's a hundred percent home. You know, he's a hundred percent loose. He's like a unicorn, you know? Mm-hmm. And I tell him every day, I'm like, oh, I'm like, what's the three rules? And we're just driving, you know, to school. And I'm like, you know, do something that scares you every day. I'm like, meet a new friend, go meet somebody you haven't met, do something that scares you. And I was like, most importantly, say hello to the ladies. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's like, right on, dad, you know, right on. And it's like, it's, it's that simple. But we can get comfortable, I think, with who we think we are. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I could be comfortable where I'm right now. You know, I retired from the military about a year and a half ago after 25 years of service. I uh, just finished writing a book. Uh, I'm in a successful organization called force blue Mm -hmm. that takes uh special operations combat veterans and repurposes us to do uh marine conservation um what does that mean uh basically they take uh combat divers you know guys with you know i kind of came in i'm kind of like a plank owner of this thing but uh i can talk as much or as little as you want but basically the force blue organization uh it's about the power of dichotomy. You know, think about uh, you when you envision in your mind as I'm speaking, you know, like a, a special operations combat veteran, combat diver uh, with a couple decades of service doing those things. Uh, you think of that person. And then now let's go and switch that. And, you know, you think about uh, a marine conservationist. Well, th- that's a pretty strong dichotomy. 
you know. Um, but that dichotomy really works. You know, like, like marine people in marine conservation are very dedicated to what they're doing. They're very selfless people. And I think that, uh, you know, the situation with, you know, combat veterans, specifically like special operations combat veterans that are combat divers doing all these things, they're pretty selfless people. You know, they were not doing that for the T-shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys do get involved in that uh, to prove to themselves they can do it. But with especially with today's day and age, man, I mean, you're a hooker turning tricks. You're, like, you're really going to see the tiger smile. If you do that job for a career, you know, at least 20 years in the military, you're not doing that for your ego. I mean, it's a 10 headed dragon. I mean, you can, we all get our egos associated with what we do. Um, I think my, my, uh, through my experiences and a lot of the things that I've tried to articulate to people with whether, you know, the podcast, you know, that we're doing now or writing the book, all these things, it's like, I would hope that your experiences allow your experiences to help you get past yourself, you know, because we're all human beings. We're all fallible. We're all good. We're bad. We're ugly. You know, we're all, we're, we're all those things, but, but, uh, we're human beings and, and, uh, you know, the saints are the sinners that just keep trying. Like you have to get up every day and try to do better than the day before, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and again, that's all subconscious things, you know, people that, um, you know, they do get comfortable, you know, and I think they get complacent. And I think that maybe is the opposite of bravery, just getting comfortable, you know, and that could be doing a career, like hiding behind a career, you know, people that get into say, I'm just can use the, the analogy of special operations. You know, it's like, well, if guys do that for two decades, well, then they can maybe go get really cool contracting jobs or something like that. But it's like, damn, bro. You didn't grow enough from that stuff. Why don't you go get a job gardening or something? Like, <laughs> yeah, go, yeah. you know, go to P&M Gardens and get someone to teach you about something you don't know anything about. You know, it's like to try to get past yourself, you know, and, and uh, allow those experiences to change you. Allow your ego to dissolve through your experiences. You know, I mean, where I've been the last, you know, year or so is I'm my cup is running over so much. I mean, like these crazy experiences with the shark diving, with the marine conservation stuff with the book. And I haven't tried to do any of this stuff, man. I mean, damn, man, I don't even know where to begin, but I mean, all this stuff is like falling in my lap and wiggling. Mm-hmm. I didn't try to write a book. That was all synchronistic. You know I mean? It all really pretty much starts with bulldog bite, you know, combat in November of 2010, surviving those experiences. And then within 24 hours of that meeting, Casey Neistat, David Kuhn and Scott Campbell, you know, that Carl Jung, the, the, he's like a sixties philosopher, kind of like an mm-hmm. Alan Watts cat. Very familiar. Yes. Yeah. It, my he, favorites. <laughs> yeah. This is great stuff. Yeah. And, and, uh, he said something, I'm going to butcher this, but basically he said that he was talking about synchronicity or serendipity. And he was like, serendipity exists when you have unprocessed events happen and you're forcing, you're projecting meaning upon them. So you're like, that's because God or that's because of whatever, whatever you want to throw in there. You know, that's because of, you know, God has a purpose for me. That's why I didn't die. You know, I mean, for you, and, I, and I know you got a bunch of questions, but I'm just talking, man. No, this is great, man. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, this is, this is how these go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And your eyes, you, you give me the bedroom eyes, so I just got to... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm not looking over here no, at you, Whitney. Because actually, this is so organic and perfect. Because I'm. This is like 
Were you supposed to be the, the Jeff, no. were you supposed to cool me down? No, no. What? This is a, I think Cody, our, you're probably seeing our faces in the sense of like, we've kind of been on these same journeys of like trying to, I don't yeah. know, getting over yourself is kind of a thing. Right. Um, but this is like therapy for me, just listening to you talk and share these experiences. Like I, yeah, I'm keep it coming, Roger. Okay. Keep it coming. okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. So talking about the, you know, synchronicity, serendipity, Alan Watts or not Alan Watts, uh, Carl Jung, you know, the, the whole, uh, yeah, just, just forcing, you know, uh, reasoning upon erratic events. Um, but, uh, you know, in 2010, uh, you cannot explain that away to me, man. I mean, the most surreal combat that I ever experienced in my life or that I think that human beings can experience. I mean, take it to the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when, you know, uh, the combat that we see now is very highly technological, you know, you can separate yourself from it with a video screen or you can just call in an airstrike or, you know, we can project much more violence than we could when we were cavemen, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't think that anyone can experience any more violence than we experienced that eight days. And and, and what you're referring to is the uh, the operation called Bulldog Bite 2 Charlie, correct? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Bulldog Bite 2 Charlie was uh, uh, an operation that took place in Afghanistan in 2010. It was in the mountains uh, on the border of Pakistan, Afghanistan. Really high altitude. Uh, you know, we're talking to an Alaskan crowd, uh, but it was, uh, you know, the mountain ridges there, you know, are significant, you know. Uh, you and know, if I remember correctly, uh, I watched the, the Lionhearted documentary uh -huh. earlier today, and you said it was the Waterpur Valley in Afghanistan, correct? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Waterpur Valley uh, is the specific area. And if you have military people out there listening, it's just north of Asadabad. Uh, everybody calls that just a bad, that's a FOB, a forward operating base out in Afghanistan, like very, uh, high Northeastern Afghanistan, a very mountainous terrain, much like kind of like the Chugak. Um, but everybody is really angry and they want to kill you, you know, mm -hmm. and they were basically going to do known raids of insurgent training camps. So kind of like insurgent ranger school is held in those mountains where they train the, the militants out there. And this is uh, not even contested area. It had been years and years since even coalition forces had gone in there. And so there's kind of, it's kind of like gang wars, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, and we wanted to go put a, a gang of our thumpers in there just to let them know that we exist and we want you to feel us. And uh, basically their, their mission was to go uh, move to contact uh, with these known insurgent training camps that are in the area and locate munitions. And, and if military age males want to fight, well then, you know, let's fight to the death, you know? And so, uh, they landed these guys high up in the mountains, like at 10,000 feet and they were going to patrol down, uh, to the, the valley floor, which was like 3000 feet. And, uh, yeah, they may, met staunch resistance. Uh, the first day, the first mission that was flown, uh, Alaskan Jimmy Settle, which was a pararescueman that was uh, that I was in charge of, who was there, he was shot in the head. Um, and the situation was so dire there. I mean, I don't want I can get as little or as into it as you want, but uh, over that week long period, uh, eleven men were killed and forty nine were brutally wounded. And that's just coalition forces. And and uh, but uh, myself and eight other pararescuemen 
and uh, uh, Pavehawk rescue crews pulled all those guys out. And uh, that was an eight-day period. I wrote this down uh, because I uh, I grew up hunting. So I, I have some frame of reference. Never mm-hmm. been to war, but I understand uh, bullet sizes, right? So you said there were soldiers coming in with 50 caliber bullet wounds. That's a big bullet. Yeah. And so, um, and again, you know, this was to the point to where things were surreal. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, okay, you know, it's a troops in contact, you know, we're going to have, we're going to shoot at each other a little bit. This is people getting overrun, like a, a 101st airborne platoon getting overrun hand-to-hand fighting. And they call us in to get their wounded and dead out as this is taking place. And so we're calling in airstrikes as we're flying in. I mean, there's already rounds flying in the same space that the Pavehawk's flying in. And we fly in there. And uh, this is, you know, every three hours, day and night, you know, hoisting in. There's nothing flat there. And to make matters worse, everything was usually above 7,000 feet. And so at those altitudes, we couldn't have the bulletproof flooring in the helicopter. And we're also weight restricted with fuel. We never try to weight restrict with ammo. Um, but uh, everything's limited. And and uh, when we're coming in there, we commit to it. And uh, you hoist down and you're getting shot at the whole time that you're doing this. You're very exposed. And when you get on the ground, it's it's literally guys missing their arms, dragging their dead buddy to you. And, and uh, it was very, very surreal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get back and you have, there's bullet holes all in the helicopter. The hoist cable you're riding in on is getting shot. Just very, very surreal. Like it's it's metaphysical. It's not like you can't, oh, this is a 50 cal and this is a, a 308 round. And this, you know, and, but they were firing, they, they, the enemy set us up every time, you know, they, they owned it. You know, these are mountain fighters, you know, and, and our boys, even though we're good, you know, the guys are in shape and they're motivated. Uh, guys are quickly pushed past their resolve, you know, and their intentions. You know, they're they're pushed past themselves, and and uh, panic overtakes people. You know, and and, and uh, you know these guys are running in sandals, you know, carrying crew served weapons, but our guys are carrying rucks, body armor, mm-hmm. radios, ammunition, food, fuel, clothing, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it was a pretty rough week, but I think the whole point that I was trying to make by bringing that up, I know you, if you want to put a tack in it, we can come back as much as you want. But no, the, I no, think the, keep going. I think the point that I was wanting to make was uh, we'd experienced that, and uh, this was, I mean, I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg, you know. And uh, you know, I mean, I, we left that week and we landed. We went back to our main base, which was about it's kind of like flying from within a helicopter from Fairbanks back here to Anchorage. It's like a two two hour two and a half hour flight back. And this is after that whole eight day period. I mean, I was, I was covered in, you know, feces, blood. I mean, I, I mean, brains, uh, we were very, very beside ourselves. You know, it's like when you, when you resound yourself to kind of die and you don't, and then it just kind of keeps happening for about a week, you know, it, it, uh, you're just kind of on this weird autopilot. And, and, uh, you know, guys get interested, you know, especially in today's day and age, like they, they, everybody wants to be a voyeur to the peep show, you know, everybody, everybody wants to kind of take pictures of shit with their smartphone, put it on fucking Instagram, 
you know, and it, it it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, there's for everything we gain, we lose, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and that happens in combat too. You know, guys will pull out their fucking smartphone and take pictures of shit. You know, of a dead body, of uh, a bullet hole. You know, of a round fragments in their helmet, blood all over their uniform, or you know, holes. I mean, I remember guys were taking pictures, and I thought that was very appropriate. Taking pictures of the battle damage, like we'd come back and. There's holes all through the fucking helicopter, you know, um, chunks missing out of the the drive shaft or the tail rotor of the helicopter. Uh, stabilizers, you know, like a quarter of it blown off mm-hmm. or we crashed it into the side of the cliff trying to get these guys, you know, ends uh, the, the props, uh, the main props of the, the pave hawk, you know, they, they shatter when they hit stuff and they come back and all of them are gone. You know, I mean, the props hit and shit, you know, um, and somehow, or, like, the helicopter is still yeah, in the air. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, guys' weapons getting shot. You know, you take a fucking picture of it. And, and I think that that's just part of our culture of who we are now. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of like one leg in, one leg out. You know, I grew up, you know, in the early, early 70s, you know. So it's like, I get it, but I don't. And, and that's one of the things I struggled with. And, and I think that's what we all struggle with when you're, you experience surreal things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you you need tangible proof that things happened. And a picture is a way of quickly capturing something that is subjective. It's an objective proof of something subjective. And I think that uh, guys do that. And at some point, uh, if you do experience violence continually at that rate for an extended period of time, you stop taking pictures. And now at some point when you stop documenting or you stop being a tourist in that space, mm-hmm. that's where we were. We were not, it was not fun. It was not cliche. It was not like, holy shit. It wasn't like, let me show you what I experienced. It was, that was yours. You just fucking took that in the gut. Mm-hmm. And you, you have, you, you cannot process that. Do you think that that's when uh, cognitive dissonance kind of kicks in and you start using, uh, like Tim O'Brien says, um, euphemisms, right? Uh, a, a burnt soldier is a crispy critter. No, right? yeah, yeah. So, well, now you're talking about. I mean, I know what you're saying, but uh, yeah, you want to disassociate, you want to disenfranchise yeah, yeah. from from the emotions of it. Um, yeah, sure, that's where the crude humor comes in, you know. Uh, but I think this is even past that. I think kind of like what you're you're kind of mentioning there is more of just a. a it's just an oddity that happens. Okay, you know, like if you, if you want to go kill a specific culture of people you have to evilize them Mm -hmm. you have to belittle them in your mind they have to be less than human for you to do that and i think that those things are kind of a way of just kind of surviving within the moment but i think that we were you know kind of like what i was i was touching on there it was just we were no longer tourists you know whatever we were seeking it was kind of scary because you had found it and uh you know, I think some of the really great analogies are, you know, like you've seen the tiger smile or, you know, you, you, it transcends itself a bit, you know, and it's not. Um, and what does that mean? See the tiger smile. I think that, um, you know, I mean, in my weird mind, I mean, it's just, it's metaphysical. Like you, you're, you're turning something into something else. Like, so like we're really going crazy here at this conversation, but, but, uh, uh, 
like Jimi Hendrix playing the guitar, mm-hmm. right? Like he, like he's playing, he's doing something with that that transcends itself. And it, it's a specific, it, it's a metaphor for itself. Like it, it goes beyond what he's actually doing, you know, and, and can a tiger smile? Probably not. And so, you know, just kind of place that analogy on it. Like it's, it's doing something that it's, it's, you're Alice and you just fell through the, the wormhole. You know, it's, it's a Cheshire cat, you know, the tiger smiling, it's a Cheshire cat, you know? So it's just something that you're applying emotion and reasoning to something that isn't emotional or reasoning, mm-hmm. you know? But as, as human beings, we, we project our, our emotions and our thoughts onto things to try to solve those problems. And I think that's what a lot of, you know, specific trauma related PTSD is, I think is, is, you're associating, you're, you're trying to have a conscious solution for something, like a, a pragmatic solution. Um, I got back from uh, those experiences and one of uh, my buddies that hadn't experienced those things, but he was uh, a close friend of mine. I actually just tattooed him yesterday. But, but he, was, he says, uh, Roger, it's not your fault. And I'm like, I know. I, I know it's not my fault. You know. And he was just trying to help me grieve. Uh, years later, he got into a car wreck with his son on uh, Turnigan coming back from skiing at Alyeska. Rollover accident. His young son was in the back seat, restrained properly at a big, tough-ass bullshit truck. Head-on collision. Rolled, you know, real bad wreck. And uh, when the when the everything stopped, he was upside down. The windows were smashed out. And all he could do is hear his son moaning in the back. And I was like, it's not your fault. You know, it's like you're going to blame yourself, right? But you can say to yourself, say like you're in a car wreck and everybody in your car dies but you and it's all your loved ones in the car. You're going to blame yourself the rest, rest of your days. I mean, you could call it survivor's guilt or grief, but it's a little bit more than that because it's like you're trying to reason with something that's unreasonable. Like, I mean, do you want to say that that was God's will? Is that what you're going to project to it? Well, that's fine if you do. I mean, there's no wrong answer there, but that's the broken record. That's that's someone that's experienced trauma or violence replaying that over and over and over because they need to try to find a logical solution to why they lived or why those things happened. And combat is like that, right? So combat, things are happening at a rate that you cannot process. You cannot process what's happening. And you live the rest of your life as a broken record trying to 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 make sense of that. Mm-hmm. And uh and I think that any, anybody that's experienced these things that, you know, they're just nodding their head. Yeah, man, you know. And there's a lot of cool techniques out there, you know. I've, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole too much. I'll just I'll let you ask questions. No, no. I actually <laughs> want to hear the techniques. And, and honestly, uh, you are actively answering my questions before I even ask them. So, so you're on a roll. Perfect. Yeah. It's the micro dosing. <laughs> if you, if you, I don't, I'm not trying to jump Please. in, but I do, um, I, the, we're working with people. I'm, I've been a nurse for 10 years and, um, I did five years as a psych and substance abuse nurse. And I ran a opiate program at South Central Foundation. And, um, I grew up in a family that experienced substance abuse, not, I didn't experience violence growing up, but, um, I did later in life as an adult with my significant other and my child. And, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting, like it, what frustrates me the most. And then thinking about working about the people that I've worked with that suffer with a lot of trauma is that, um, the, the effects of that and the, and the involuntary changes that happen to you feel uh i guess the best way i could put it is very unfair because you can't 
you can't get away from those things, right? But it's mm -hmm. like you put, but when we're talking about combat or something like that, it's your, you put yourself there, right? Like you well, knew, yeah, I, and so it's kind of like, how do you, it's voluntary, but involuntary. And then how do you reason with it? I keep hearing you say that. And I, that resonates with me because it's like, sometimes there just isn't reasoning with it. You have to find a way to, to move through it. Yeah. So you can just be up every day, like you said, you know, tasting blood and feeling alive and looking at the moon. I mean, that's kind of when I think about is how do you face yourself and the rest of your life every morning? Yeah. You know, it's a weird, it is a weird space to be in. For sure. Yeah. yeah when you were talking, I was, I was actually thinking of what we spoke about earlier about, you know, blaming others or blaming yourself, you know? Um, I mean, I know, you know, through my experiences, um, my younger son, uh, when he was four months old, uh, went to wake him up from a nap, ended up doing CPR on him for about 20 minutes. And so he's got an anoxic brain injury. So he has cerebral palsy. He's nonverbal now. And, um, you know, doing that, like doing CPR on your child for that long, you know, I mean, I, I did not do that, but I can only blame myself. Right. And so it's like, I don't blame that situation. I'm blaming myself. You know, it's like, it, we always work within that space. Um, uh, and so, and again, this is a whole lot of counseling, a lot of inpatient treatment facilities for me to come to the understanding of that I can just talk about this like I've just mapped out my inner psyche. But uh, um, a lot of the rescues I did as an Alaska pararescueman were really pushing it. And now that spe specific situation that happened with my son, Oz, when he was younger, that was right as I completed pararescue training. And I also had a horrific back injury during that same time. And so uh, recovering from the back injury as well as uh, uh, coming to grips with my son's disability were kind of are one and the same. But, uh, I mean, it's it's overwhelming. And, and as I look back on it now as, as a, as a pararescueman pushing the limits of everything, you know, I mean, I grew up in the gray area. You know, I mean, I grew up you know, really understanding that truth is in the gray area of things. But, uh, I mean, like if, if, you know, the minimum altitude for a, a parachute deployment was 2000 feet, but in Alaska, the weather brought us down to like a thousand feet or something like that. I mean, I'm, you know, let's do it. You know, what kind of work were you doing as a pararescue man in Alaska? Um, I mean, the work as a pararescue man in Alaska, you're basically on alert to, uh, aid, you know, people in distress, you know, people in, in mortal stress in Alaska and search and rescue, right? That's yeah. Doing, the, doing yeah. search and rescue. And, and, uh, yeah, thanks. I just kind of, that's okay. I just looking way beyond there. I'm just, I want to get right into the nuts and bolts, but, uh, so, um, the air national guard in Alaska holds an alert posture and, uh, it always averaged out again. I was up here since 2004. It's, uh, 2019 now. So, you know, for, you know, well over 10 years, I was a pararescueman up here and it, it averaged a ride about 52 to 57 rescues a week. I'm sorry, not a week, uh, but a year. So like one a week, basically. Mm -hmm. It always averaged to about one rescue a week. And now some months you might be completely dry, but it's going to make up for it. You know, um, all the rescues were somewhat seasonal. You know, if it was uh, hunting season, climbing season tourist season, you know, all the rescues would kind of like go down that checklist. Um, 
And uh, to be honest, you know, 90% of those rescues were saving them from the environment of Alaska. But 10% of those rescues were like, no shit. Like, I need to intervene, give you an airway, or do very invasive procedures to you in the back of the helicopter to save your life. You know, that was about 10% of them. But in all of them, uh, we saved them by just getting them out of that environment, you know. Um, Does any of those 10% stick out in your mind? Yeah, there's a few. Like I said, I mean, I, I just finished writing that book, Warrior's Creed, and, and mm-hmm. um, I, I cataloged quite a few of them in there uh, that I wrote about. I'm trying to think about some that weren't in there. Yeah, so there was uh, one. Uh, this is uh, Red Devil Mine and uh, a young boy. Um, a young boy had tried to commit suicide with his father's hunting rifle uh, right into his face. I stuck it right under his chin and pulled the trigger. It was like a 308, I think. And uh, now this was like in February, man. And uh, it was two in the morning when we got the call. And we're on, we have we have different alert postures. And I don't want to get, I mean, it's kind of boring to get into the, the semantics of a lot of the stuff. But uh, we took off within an hour. Uh, we're flying to him. But that usually from point of injury, like the time of injury, it takes us about four hours to get to that person. And so... We all know about the golden hour, you know, basically if someone's, you know, mortally wounded or critically injured, they have an hour to get it into the, uh, the a surgical team to start you know, in the operating room before uh, they're just going to die. Like, like, like Darwinism is going to sort them out by the time we get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got there and uh, this 16 year old boy had shot himself in, in this. It was really interesting because, you know, we can take off, you know, people that live here in Anchorage or Fairbanks or the bigger cities, you know, like you really become inoculated that we're in Western culture. But uh, the a large portion of Alaskans live very, very rurally, you know, mm-hmm. completely off grid. And I mean, people think that, you know, oh, we're Alaskans, we're all tough, but there's very different Alaskans. You know, people's Alaskan experiences, you know, differ wildly. And, and I'm very thankful to have seen the highs and lows of that. I mean, just as a pararescueman, I mean, we get called out, you know, it's always the worst day of someone's life, but I mean, I've spent, you know, quite a bit of time in Barrow, you know, out in, uh, you know, uh, the Diomedes, Nome. I mean, I've, I've been all over, you know, I've seen it all and I, I meet people, you know, on the worst day of their life, you know, and, and so it's a very human interaction, you know. What happened to that 16 year old? Yeah. So, uh, again, he had shot himself in the, in the, in the face and there's a lot of Alaskan isms to this story, right? And so we're flying there and it's two in the morning. I'm dead. I'm just so, so, so just dead tired. I mean, we worked a full day. Again, I'm a husband, father of uh, two young boys at the time. And uh, when we're on alert as pararescuemen, I mean, we still train really rigorously, ice climbing, skiing, doing rope rescues, and turning diving, doing all this stuff. And we don't let, just because we're on alert, slow us down. And we had a, we had a full day of stuff. And, and uh, I was really exhausted. And we got to call it two in the morning. We go and hop in the helo. We take off and we do multiple aerial refuelings to get there. And so when we take off, there's a C-130 and there's a Pavehawk. There's PJs on board the C-130 in case they need to jump in. And I just happen to be on the uh, uh, the helo. And most of the missions are dealt with by the helo. But if the person's going to die... Uh, before the helo can get there, the, the C-130 is much faster. It can get there on quickly, and the PJs will jump in, sustain the casualties, and then we're, they're met with the helicopter. And so I was on the helicopter, 
Uh, but we, as we're in route, uh, I'd never drank a, uh, like an energy drink. <laughs> I'd, oh Lord. I'd never drank an energy drink and I'm, you know, mid thirties, really strangely good shape, you know, and just, but I'm dead tired. And, and my buddy shared a, a monster, like a full can of like cotton candy monster or some shit. And <laughs> I drink this thing and literally I'm like ready to fight everybody in the, in the aircraft. Cause I'm just so excited, you know? And anyway, we landed, but we couldn't pinpoint the location of the exact cabin where the young boy was at. Um, a guy was talking to us on a uh, ham radio and uh, he was letting us know that he knows exactly where the boy is. He happens to be the principal of the school that everybody, all the kids in the villages go to. And he's going to meet us at a remote airstrip with uh, some dog sleds and dogs with people to get us. Now we're going to land the helicopter, get in with these guys with snow machines and dog sleds. They're going to take us to the remote cabin so we can treat the kid Mm -hmm. because they, there's I mean, no it, other way to get there. Yeah, and this yeah, was like yeah. a three or four hour flight, one way to get to the location. And uh, and I'm totally butchering the story. This, this is just a story that's standing on my mind. And yeah. So, uh, but we get there, and I'm the junior PJ, the junior pararescueman. So I'm the acting medic, and the the, the senior pararescueman. His job is to like figure out how to how we're going to get out, and I'm just treating the patient. And so, but we get there, and uh, it's there's no electricity in the cabin. There's a raging fire. It's a wood-burning stove, like an old wood-burning stove, like turn-of-the-century wood-burning yeah. iron stove. Mm-hmm. And so it's not some nice, you know, Harvia cool stove. I mean, this is like was welded out of, you know, an old Buick or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you could As soon as you came in there, I could smell uh, burnt flesh and feces, you know. And it's a small cabin. This is like a – this is a proper remote Alaska cabin, the doorway, you know, like three feet high kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is after this plane's trains automobiles to get there. I go in and uh, I hear a woman wailing. And this is an Alaska Native woman wailing in the corner. And there's no electricity. So it's the only light is the fire that's burning in the wood-burning stove there. And I've got a headlamp. Of course, I, I've got it on because we've been this crazy-ass story to get to where they're at. And uh, I notice the woman immediately wailing in the, in the corner. And she's wailing. And she's speaking Yupik. And uh, I look down at the boy, and the boy is in his underwear, like uh, cotton whitey tidies. And his face is gone. I mean, completely gone, but he's holding his face, and he's rolling, and he's rolling into the wood-burning stove. And so that's what's causing the burning smell, is mm-hmm. he's physically rolling and burning himself against the stove. And then one-room cabin. Uh, at, the, at the end of the... the uh, the small cabin there, his father was in uh, the bed with like 12 wild turkey bottles around him. And he's half holding one and just like mumbling to himself. And uh, so I jump on the kid and I start treating him. I tried to intubate him because our protocols, you know, you, when you're a paramedic or anything within medicine nowadays, I and mean, hell, most all trade jobs, it's like this just protocol. You're going to, I'm going to do this, they're going to do this. And because they do this, I'm going to do this, you mm-hmm. know. So I'm just kind of going down that protocol. And it started out where I stick it. An ET tube, an endotracheal tube down his airway. You intubated. Yeah, I went to intubate him, but he had no uh, lower jaw. He had, you know, he, he just had his tongue. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, but I, I intubate him and then he throws up coffee ground blood all over me and he's fighting me, pushing me off of him. And again, I mean, like, you know, this is the rubber meeting the road. You know, this is not like clinical medicine. So it's like this dude, yeah, sure, is it, he needs, I need to secure his airway. But 
he's been waiting four hours for me. He's he's got an airway, you yeah, know, and he, and yep. and so, um, and so I'm like, all right, bro, man, I'm totally sorry, sorry, man. I'm like, can can you hear me talking? And I realize he starts using sign language mm-hmm. to talk to me. My son uses sign language because he's nonverbal, and mm-hmm. so instantly I'm like, holy shit! And I start saying everything that he's saying, and he gets really excited that I'm speaking what he's saying. And that was really powerful that we just instantly connected. And so I basically just gave him an IV. I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to give you some funky monkey. You let me know yep. when you feel better. Take and so, yeah, I start snowing him over. And a lot of times, you know, I don't want to get into the, the medicine of it, but, you know, you snow people over. And uh, I definitely did that for him. And that mission, uh, we had to get him on a snow machine. Like I packaged him up, got him on a snow machine, got him out to where my partner was out there chainsawing the trees down around this cabin so we could land the helo to get him in the helo. And this is cold as balls, man. I mean, whatever the ambient temperature at Red Devil Mine is in February, that's what temperature it was at two in the morning. You know I mean? It was, it was freaking cold. You know? Yeah. And uh, so we also, he was, a, he was an underage miner, so we had to bring his father. And his father was a worse patient than he was because now his father's just drunk as, as hell, you know, and inebriated. Mm-hmm. And uh, a big guy, like an, an obese, large male. And so we had to get all that in the back of the helo. Because of the urgency of the situation and it was a minor that we uh, we went back out to the runway. They landed the C-130 out on that remote runway. And this is all at 2 in the morning, man, in February. And we transloaded from the, the helicopter to the Herc and got him there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that stands out in my mind. You know, that was, that was a significant mission. Years later, a buddy of mine did a jump mission to that same boy that tried to commit suicide again. So we had saved him and, and, you know, obviously his home situation hadn't improved, you know I mean? But, uh, you know, and it's not all doom and gloom out there. You know, I mean, uh, it's a beautiful Alaska. It's a beautiful culture. You know, the, the native culture there is just beautiful and, and there's an amazing, you know, depth to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that that mission definitely stood out in my mind. And, and I think where the difficulties of the cultures, and I don't even feel right speaking in a public forum about, you know, Western society, you know, uh, injecting itself into primitive, not uh, primitive culture isn't even the right term, but, but to native culture, mm-hmm. that causes a disparity that I don't think was there before. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and it's like yes. they were doing fine before us, but the, you start bringing Taco Bell and, and TVs and shit. And, and and wild turkey. And yeah, yeah. And, and so it's like the, 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 the youth of that culture, you know, it's, it's the fuzzy, crispy, sugary thing. Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to stare at that. You want to know about that. I want to go to Anchorage. I want to get out of here. I don't care about what you're saying to me. I don't care about our culture. Mm-hmm. There's this fuzzy, tasty, warm, crispy thing right in front of me, and I need to go figure this out. And uh, I think that's the inherent risk of Western culture into native indigenous cultures. You know, I mean, many native indigenous cultures, I, I have more respect for them than, than our own culture. I mean, we, we provide technological advances, but we're by no way have it figured out. Respecting nothing nature. and nothing is sustainable yeah. in the way that we live our lives, you know, and, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, even like we were talking about saunas and stuff. I mean, every indigenous culture on earth knows the benefits of sa- of, of exposing yourself to heat and cold. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and so now it's like, you know, us with our CrossFit and shit, we think it's so awesome that we're doing this stuff now. Yeah. You know, it's like. They've been doing it for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. It would not last in a sweat lodge, bro. We just would not. Like, yeah, the- yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, and, you know, you know, Alaska, you know, native. Again, I mean, the, the, the wisdom is there. And, I mean, I've just been on the periphery in awe of witnessing that, mm-hmm. you know, up in Barrow, you know, watching them wail, you know, do different things. I mean, that, that, that's amazing cultures that. I could not, I could not fathom or exist there. You know I mean? That, that's, that's way past me, man. When speaking to that young boy, he was obviously, uh, suffering from depression. He was suicidal. Those things exist in every culture in the sure. entire world. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, and being a healer too, like the gift of healing, like when you were talking about, you realized that he could communicate, I bounces me back to my medicine where it's like, listen, you know, like I am, I'm an ally here. I'm your friend. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm yeah. like only trying to help you. Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah, he's know? doing that out of desperation. Then all of a sudden, you know, his, you know, my active job is to save his life and to attempt to heal him, to balance him in some way, but I'm immediately connecting and communicating with him. That's a powerful thing. It's I mean, really that's, that's step one. That's, that's yeah. step one. Right? Yeah. Get him on, get him on the same side. And I mean, but he was, it's, yeah, well, I don't want to go into rabbit holes, but I mean, that's, I love that about the job that, there's no posturing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's all very necessity. Again, it's desperate. Like we were talking about the desperation of that, you know, he's obviously desperate, but I'm desperate to try to help him mm-hmm. and to connect in that, that space. It's, uh, it's sustaining, but it's fuel to a fire. You know, I'm, I'm, and I guess I, I was wanting to finish my thought with that, but doing all those crazy rescues as an Alaska pair rescue man, I was trying, I've been, I was trying to save my son the whole time. Every patient that I've ever touched, I was subconsciously trying to save my son Oz from an anoxic brain injury, you know. And so um, that's subconscious. That desperation is there. So, I mean, you want me to jump out of the aircraft at 1,000 feet and the chutes are only safely rated to 2,000 or 3,000 feet? I'm fine because I'm desperate. Like I'm, I'm, I'm already as desperate as you are and you're dying in a tree, freezing to death, waiting for me to get to you. And I'm as desperate as you are, you know. But you know that that uh, that job shielded me from my thoughts. It kept it subconscious. And then whenever I retired, I was forced to try to understand those subconscious motivations, because now I'm not doing that. But I mean, it's kind of tricky because now I'm tattooing people, and I know it sounds silly, but tattooing someone as a tattooer, you know, we all project different things. But now it's like I'm still a pararescueman. And I'm doing something that you need. Like you're coming to me because you want me to articulate something for you. So it's very almost, I feel like this like shaman healer in some way. And I just, I mean, I'm just this dirtball tattooer, you know, just like trying to, <laughs> trying to learn the trade, right? I mean, I'm trying to make a buck. Uh, but at the same time, subconsciously, what I'm drawn to is one, recreating what Scott and Casey and David did for us in Afghanistan, right? If that, we get to that. Uh, we'll have to come back to it for sure. But I'm also projecting those same things as a healer, like the, my patients in pain, I'm touching them and I'm doing things to them. It's very much so like I'm putting a chest tube in you in the back of the helo. You know, I'm strapping you down. I'm giving you ketamine, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm, you're willing to go through this pain because you, you know, you might be just some young coming to age kid and you want a cool tattoo, but most of the people that I've tattooed, uh, they've either sought me out or their friends that are pararescue men, their other special operations guys or other combat veterans that want me to tattoo them. And uh, 
they realize the significance of having that other person that's tattooing them understand their experiences. And it doesn't matter what the hell I'm tattooing. I'm not the greatest tattoo artist in the world, but I'm connecting with them in a very sincere way. And I'm not just doing it for the money. That's, How'd you get that start? How'd you start tattooing? Yeah, that's a great place just to stop me and I, I can go back. I mean... Oh, I, I apologize. Were you going to... No, no, okay. no, no. Um, so, again, Operation Bulldog Bite to Charlie. We experienced what we had experienced. I, I was talking about that. We were talking about the surreal combat. We came back and we landed and we had landed. And we'd only been back for like 24 hours. Like literally... I still have, you know, cake feces blood. I mean, there's brain matter in my helmet that's not mine. I mean, surreal stuff, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm completely grief-stricken. I go into our compound and, uh, I mean, there's blood caked all over my weapon, you know. And uh, I look at the pictures of my wife and kids in my little ready locker. And we're right on the flight line. I mean, like the helicopter's 20 feet and I'm right there at my locker. And we call it the opium den. Um, <laughs> I like that. I don't know why, but, but I do. <laughs> but, uh, and I was, I was in charge of the guys there, and we, I just kind of gave, like, honeycomb hideout, you know, like opium den, whatever, you know. So it's funny little terms everywhere I go, you know. And, uh, but um, I look at the picture of my wife and son, and I, I'm just on all fours crying, you know. And uh, we get a knock on the door. I mean, literally, like, knock, knock, knock. And, and uh, I open the door up, and there's a public affairs officer. And we're in a we're in a very secured spot. Like, I mean, uh, it's a, like, it's, that's like top secret clearance stuff. Like where we're at right there. You know, I mean, there's predator drones driving by with hellfire missiles on them, like 10 feet from our door. You know I mean? It, it's a really controlled spot and we're right there fully armed cutting, you know, we have Mohawks for haircuts, you know, nobody, you know, it's like, we're very unregulated right there. And we're just doing, we call it like the business end of freedom. Like we're right there, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, knock on the door. So we open it up and there's a public affairs officer and three gentlemen that are obviously civilians. And uh, but they were they were our age. I mean, they, they, they were cool cats. Like I could tell right away that they were cool, cool cats, you know, and. Uh, they're talking to us and they kind of pitch their idea. They're like, hey, man, you know, we want to make a documentary about special forces guys right from combat uh, tattoo. And we want to tattoo you and make a documentary about it. And I'm like fuck you know but but <laughs> that's no, what i'm thinking i'm like no i'm like fuck? but i'm like i'm like that's kind of intriguing but that's just fucking weird and, and and it's weird in a way that i'm just going to listen to you for a second and um again i i've kind of forced gut my way through my life and what i mean by that is i just stumble into really weird shit all the time and one of my one of my friends as i was growing up is oliver peck he's he's a tattoo artist he's on the show ink master i never in my life ever would have I, I mean, I love tattoos. I was, you know, I had a lot of tattoos at that point, but I mean, whatever, right? Who gives a shit? And, uh, but this guy, Oliver Peck, who's like the the judge or host or whatever of like uh, Ink Mask, you know, he's, but he's a really cool cat. And, and uh, he had tattooed me a whole lot. He learned tattooing on one of my best friends. Um, he opened his shop and my best friend, built the whole place out for him. All the counters and everything in Elm Street Tattoo are still made by my buddy. You know, mm -hmm. it's all still there. And, and uh, he's tattooed my mom. So, I mean, like, that's the only person I know that tattoos. That's great. He's tattooed your mom. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And that sounds really weird, but I mean, whatever, right? Yeah, and I get it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and uh, 
But so this guy who somewhat, I guess, made it in tattooing, I guess is my point, is the only point of reference I have for tattooing whatsoever. And so I just asked the tattoo artist. I didn't know who Scott Campbell was. I didn't know who Casey Neistat was. And these, this is before, I think, their, both of their careers really exploded. Like Casey blew up in the whole YouTube world. Um, but this is before all that, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm just, I'm talking to the artist. I'm like, hey, man, so do you know Oliver Peck? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know the Pecker. I've worked down at Elm Street. And so it's, it's, I'm just like, I don't know. And I hate dudes that play the fucking name game. Like, I'm just like, I know Oliver. You know, Oliver? And he's, he's like, yeah, he's like, I know Oliver. And I'm, he, instantly I'm like, all right. I mean, just by his mannerisms, but there was something very interesting too. And in when I first met these guys, so they're just looking at me. And again, I mean, like I'm literally covered in shit and piss, blood, cum, brain matter, some mine, some other people's. I mean, just really a mess, you know? And I mean, I haven't showered in over a week. And, uh, I mean, I'm so far fucking past myself. Like, I'm just now coming home, you know, and, and, uh, this is right after, you know, all that, that fucking sodomy, you know, and, uh, just beside ourselves with horror and rage and just all of it. And we have three days and then we're going to go back out and do it again. We have three days and we're going to go back out, but we're not really off. Like as a pararescueman or when you're doing combat search and rescue, like you go back to your main base, but we're still getting called out. And, but this isn't that type of combat. Like I was talking to you, it could be, you know, we could get RPG, Crash fucking Hilo, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but that's kind of routine to us, you know, uh, but uh, whenever they were telling us the original idea outside of the opium den, they're like, hey, so blah, 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 we want to do this documentary and they're looking at me and I can tell uh, Scott Campbell and Casey Neistat are kind of like going back and forth. They're kind of like looking at me because here I am, like they're face to face with what their desires are. But I am like their loss of innocence, you know. What do you mean by that? Like I, I personify their loss of innocence. It's kind of like, hey, let's go see a fucking donkey show in Tijuana. You're the guy to, to but, suggest that. Well, you know, just just for instance, like, hey, let's go fucking see this. Isn't that be fucking cool? Yeah. And then you get there and you realize it's not. It's that fucking cool. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, yeah, yeah. That's I was thinking. It's yeah. like, oh, you. Th- this is what yeah. you thought you were after, but is not yeah, as and, easy or as fun as you think it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, and so they're like they're face yeah. to face with the reality of what intrigued them. And so like I'm manifestation of this loss of innocence. And I could see that. And this is just me reflecting on this stuff. I mean at the time it was just this weird feeling. It was just like, uh yeah, uh let's fucking do it. You know, <laughs> it was just like it was just because what that was, and this is just me in reflection, is that was a very human response that they had. And I was really past human emotion and responses at that moment. And it made me come a little bit closer to myself. Made me come home a little bit just to see the reaction for me to realize that I'm so far fucking gone that I represent this to them. Like I am this 10,000 yard stare again. And that was powerful because it was like, okay, well recognizing that is the first step to coming back. And if you want to fucking, there's nothing more intimate. I mean, other than sex with someone that you love, right? Or, you know, playing with your child. There's nothing more intimate than someone fucking tattooing you, you know. And I think, again, this the synchronicity of this shit is fucking spooky, man. Like, I'd never experienced combat to that level, nor do I think human beings can't experience things beyond that. I mean, that, that's it. once it goes to the surreal factor, that's it, right? And, and it's just survivor's guilt or grief after that, you know. 
like you all got blood on your hands, you know, at that point. And then um, now to have these fucking guys standing in front of me wanting to tattoo me, I was just like, fucking, whoa, man. Okay. And I had the, I had the ability to say, no, fucking beat it. Mm-hmm. But it was that human reaction. I was like, okay. Come and that on was, in. Yeah, come on in. And so, but I'd be like, hey, public affairs guy, you're not allowed in. So just like, go get all their shit and fucking bring it here. These guys are with us now. And uh, they stayed with us for three days. And Scott tattooed the fuck out of us in Afghanistan. Right. What did he tattoo? Uh, well, he tattooed everybody pretty much uh, with just different shit. And so that was his kind of human experiment. It's like, what the fuck are these guys going to want? But now again, just to kind of back up and put things into perspective, there's a lot of people in the military. And I would say out of 100% of people in the military, less than 10% do the fighting. Less than 10% do the fighting. Of that less than 10%, let's go ahead and say the people that make a career out of it, special operations guys, let's say the 2% of that that do that. They make their whole fucking career, their whole adult life is spent doing that. And so you're kind of like in a subculture within a subculture within a subculture. And you're so far fucking gone, man. Like when you land in Baltimore and everybody, or you're on the airplane, everybody's like, hey, everybody, we have some people coming back from overseas on board. And you have like that young army private wearing his uniform. That's not the guy I'm talking about. I'm talking about the guy that's over in the corner in between his fucking Jack and Coke's crying because he just feels like he just let everybody fucking down. You know, that's, that's, that's who Scott wanted to tattoo. And that's, so again, that's less than 2% of the fucking military. And now he's face to face with it. You know, you know, there's fucking predator drone live feeds fucking doing target hits on the TV next to him as he's tattooing us. You know, like he is as close to the reality of projecting violence as you can be, you know. Um, and so that's fucking spooky, too, that he just blundered into us. They they were about to give up on their project because they had a bunch of fake press passes and they planes, trains and fucking automobiled their way. I was going to ask, how did they get there? Yeah. Casey did a whole film on it and he's, uh, <laughs> how did he, you get in there? Cause I, yeah, yeah. It, it, but these guys are men of no means by no means means of no means. What's how, how's that go? It's like a means by no means. Okay. Like they make shit happen. They, they're the magic makers. They'll, and again, they're desperate. Like, so why is Casey nice to a great fucking YouTube vlogger? Cause he's desperate to fucking articulate something. Mm-hmm. Why is Scott Campbell such an amazing fucking artist? Cause he has something to fucking say and he can't say it by speaking. Right. So it's like, there's a desperation there. Those guys were just as desperate as fucking we were. And he's looking in my eye and he's just like, God damn. But they were this fucking lightning rod. And, 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 but so all those things are fucking bizarre, man, to link up to that moment in Afghanistan doing that at that fucking time. And uh, for like three days nonstop, you know, like I got my son on my chest, my son's names with sparrows on my chest, you know, which is a pretty fucking cliche tattoo, but like I didn't care. It's, it's, and that's the interesting thing about a tattoo, right, is it makes things that are subjective or, you know, just something that's intangible, tangible. Like I can feel it when you tattoo me and I can – I can look at my fucking chest and realize that you tattooed me. 
that's that's pretty fucking magical. And so I was beside myself. Like I think that night, again, this is less than 24 hours from uh, events that I was awarded the the Silver Star for. The guy I was with definitely, the, the, you know, you know, four guys died in my arms that night. You know, we were able to save five of them and get them out. But uh, this, this is like 24 hours from those fucking events. And, and you have these guys meeting me and tattooing me. Now, um, so they did all this shit. They tattooed us. That night, as Scott's tattooing us, I pull up on Wikipedia. And again, man, I'm not big. This is like literally the iPhone just fucking came. This is 2010. What is it like fucking... 10 years ago. That's crazy to yeah. think about, right? That's but it's like, that was the ice shuffle. That was before the I fucking phone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that. when you had an ice shuffle was cool, right? Yeah. And so I look up on Wikipedia and I look it up and no shit, man. There it was November 10th or November 14th, 2010, Operation Bulldog Bite, the heaviest fighting, November 14th, blah, blah, blah. 11 killed, 49. The facts were still a little bit fuzzy, but they're just, however they fucking get their info, who fucking cares, right? But it was proof. I felt like Steve Martin and the jerk mm-hmm. where he rips out the phone page. My name's in the fucking paper. I'm fucking real. You know, it's like, it's like it was real because I could read it and it's so fucking stupid. But it was because I'm hurting and I want to validate my hurt. I want I want to understand that this was real or is this just like I mean maybe if someone was like fucking you know raped or if someone was abused physically like you want to know that's fucking real, you know? Um another like I couldn't bring myself to shower for like 3 months cuz like I'm like I'm like I need to fucking feel I I don't I would need to know this is real. And it was just a subconscious or it was weird shit, you know. And um uh, yeah, so they tattooed us, and that's fucking real. I could look at it, you know. You could feel it too, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Physically. and I and a lot of people say, you know, and I I don't even want to digress, but you know, I, I tattoo at Eagle River Tattoo, and one out of every five people I start tattooing is like, I like the way it feels. This is my therapy, and you're like, you know, our five of this, you're not going to like any of this shit. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but, that the truth. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's like <laughs> no one likes tattooing, but they like the experience of. And what what they're tra- I think they're trying to articulate is is that specific thing, right? It's it's bringing something that that that's intangible, tangible, you know, whether it's an emotion or a thought, a feeling or a projection, symbols and promises. That's tattoos, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're the the feeling of projecting something, and it's only as good as long as you are alive, you know. And so that's powerful medium, you know. But anyway, so they tattoo us. Um, it was really fucking crazy, and they left. We went right the fuck back out, you know, and we were, I mean, this was so dire. Like we were literally making like hoistable body bags to put live people in so we could save a minute underneath the helo when we're hoisting people under fire, you know, and they saw that we were doing all this shit and we have so many resources at our disposable. I mean, like we have riggers and people that are sewing shit with the best fucking nylons and shit right there. Cause I'm like, we need this right now. And so they're fabricating it right fucking then. And this guy's tattooing us. Um, I remember one of the most poignant moments that, again, allowed me to kind of stay holding to myself. Jimmy had been shot in the head. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, Never Quit. And that's how I, I met Don Reardon. And we wrote Warrior's Creed. Like I said, I didn't ask to do any of this shit, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jimmy was shot in the head, but we didn't evacuate him, you know. 
the 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 round got lodged the 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 spalding from the round got lodged in his fucking skull like on the external portion of his skull and so we just sewed it shut and he kept fucking got up on the horse and just kept going you know and so you know that's where we were and it was funny because scott was like uh, what happened to your head because johnny or jimmy's got a big fucking bandage on his head right and he's like ah oh, i popped a zit and then because you know everybody's because now that's that macabre humor right yeah because he's facing the fucking dragon you know every fucking day he in fact i think he flew out on a mission for a marine that got blown up stepped on a mine or something right then he came back he's like where'd you guys go i just heard helicopters and shit it's like oh nothing he's like what happened to your head he's like i ah, popped his it and then somebody he was like just 20 minutes later he's like hey, what what happened to him he's like he got shot in the head a couple days ago and they i remember scott it was just like god damn <laughs> You know, or he's coming back and there's blood all over guys because he's tattooing us, but we're still, there's no day or night when you're doing this stuff. It's just, it was even more surreal. I mean, it was just fucking weird. Like uh, NBC, Lester Holt and all these fucking guys showed up and uh, because they were going to do some kind of feel good Thanksgiving day with the troops thing, but they just happened to do it with us, right? Because we're kind of a sexy commodity. We got helicopters and fucking weird gear and shit and you know, so Lester Holtz wants to go fly with us, you know, and, and, uh, but we were just like, fucking, why don't I hang out with these dudes, you know? And so, yeah. You're like, Lester, next, next. You know, and, you know, and the guys I mean, hit it now. off with them, man. The guys <laughs> hit him off with them, you know, hit it off with them, you know, but it's just kind of like they want to ask these canned fucking questions. And it's just like, bro, like, yeah, I don't even know what the fuck you're saying, you know? And, and, but, uh, and I mean, this is, we have a lot of, uh, latitude we have a lot of rope we can hang ourselves with especially where i was in pararescue at the time you know like i'm in charge of you know that specific group of guys so i was like hey let's go fly you guys around you know me and a couple of guys made it all happen and so we flew casey and david and scott around in the fucking helo hoisted them up and down i mean because it's just like you know we just experienced the most intense shit that anyone can experience short of you know doing cpr on your fucking kid or something you know or Mm -hmm. and it's like I'm just like, hey, you know, Cyclone, can we fucking fly these guys around? Everybody has nicknames. You know, he's like, right on, fucking Anvil. Let's fly these fucking guys. You know, and that's the pilot. Just get the fuck in. Let's go fucking fuck like, off. No rules at yeah, this but, point. But I mean, like, we're, we're, we, we're just beyond it. You know, this is, yeah, apocalypse. Yeah. this is apocalypse now, man. This is not, it's just really far gone. Yeah. You know, we're way up the fucking river, you know. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, they do it. Uh, they leave, um, and then they're gone. But it was like, fuck! I can look at my tattoos. I got tattooed, man. And uh, we had a few more months there. All of us were pretty fucked up. I mean, just to realize how far gone we were. I think the base was getting a rocket attack when it was our time to go get on the C seventeen, and we just drove right through it. Like everybody hunkers down and gets in bunkers and shit, and we're just driving. The C seventeen that we were getting, we're supposed to get on, got. Uh, rounds through it or something like a you know they they do weird shit they do like kind of like mortar fire with rpgs try to fuck stuff up on the airfield but we're just tossing bags in the back of the bird as all this stuff's happening we're just, it, we were cooked man our banana was so fucking fried difficulties came we came back and uh as an alaska pararescueman there's only 20 to 30 of us at a time and it takes 10 any given 24 hours to hold that alert status and so when we were hot racking it, like half of us as Alaska PJs are in Afghanistan, half of us are here pulling the fucking Alaska state mission. And so when we got back, 
those guys were already there. So we had to pick up the alert immediately. And I mean, I think it was, I had like three days off and I was right back doing rescues in Alaska. And it's just like, there's no time to process that shit, you mm -hmm. know? Um, or even begin to like inventory, like how do you, there's, there's no fucking way. Start? Yeah. Do you, how do you even heal? Like there's, there is, I mean. Yeah. And it's like, you get the canned fucking, like we would come back and you do the in processing briefing, you know, and these people like, you know, again, less than 90% of the military really sees that stuff, you know, and uh, when we just make a job out of it, not okay. I'm going to see that here. I'm going to see it here too. I'm going to go deal with plane crashes, families fucking, you know, dead in the fucking back of a plane and in a fucking frozen lake, you know, and like, and that's, I have three days off from the Afghanistan stuff to this stuff, you know? And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, there's no processing it, you know, there's just absolutely no fucking processing any of it. And that's where the real problems begin because it's just, you just, you just can't, you know, and, and, uh, you realize that you're kind of far gone. I realized I was far gone. Uh, I was sitting in my living room, which is just 20 feet away from where we're recording this. And, uh, I was watching Forrest fucking Gump. I use the Forrest Gump analogy. Yeah, analogy, yeah. But I'm watching Forrest Gump. And I mean, like, how many times have you seen Forrest Gump? You, you ask any middle-aged person, you say a dozen? <laughs> fuck, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. A dozen, a dozen partial times, maybe all the way through twice. But I mean, it's like, how many times have you fucking seen that? You know? And I'm watching it and I've got my two young boys with me. And I'm back from Afghanistan. And I'm having a good time. And I'm we're about to shower. It's like six, seven o'clock in the evening. And. I'm just sitting there watching this, you know, back when we had cable, right? Now everything's internet, right? but we're watching it. And, um, there's a combat scene that comes up where the it's raining and then it just stops raining. And that's very fucking realistic. Like the way that the sounds and the, and the percussiveness of the, the RPGs and stuff that are going by. And if it, it fucked me up, man, instantly, like, I just like, everything kind of tightened up on me and I started like just tears started coming out of my eyes and I couldn't help it, but I'm holding my two sons. Like I'm literally fucking one arm around one son, one arm around the other one, man. And I came out right to where I'm sitting recording this and I just went fetal on the garage floor and just started crying. And I was like, and my, my older son went and got my wife and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You know, knowing full well, like fuck man, Forrest Gump should not, fucking do that to me man like I'm, I'm in trouble this and, is not good <laughs> and I, I tried to get help you know I, I tried to get help and you know the, the the military does what it can do you know but I think the problem lies in that percentage that I was throwing out like less than 10% really see stuff you know like I, I was explaining and then less than 2% really make a job out of it mm -hmm. and um, but those 2% they're the tie hookers, man. They're the guys that are always on the clock. And, um, fuck, man. It, it just, so the military tries to solve the problem with awareness and discussions. And then, then you just get all these people that almost like fucking posture, like they have PTSD, you know, anyone can have PTSD. If you think your life isn't being threatened, and things are happening beyond your control, that's PTSD. Your shit is happening to you that you will not process. It's You're going to have to actively try to process that shit. That's P and that can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. But combat-related PTSD is a very misunderstood thing, I think, with the general public. I think that far fewer veterans have it than 
the public thinks. I think that a lot of veterans have adjustment issues, a very difficult adjustment from their military life or their deployment to readjusting, like readjustment issues. It's not PTSD. But, uh, and I don't want to minimize, and here's, I mean, I, I really don't want to minimize anybody's experiences. But, uh, I mean, I've, I've been through all the treatment programs there are. You know, I, I've, I've been to Chris Kyle. Uh, I've, I've gone through all the behavioral health or mental health people that the, the military can throw at me. Um, and all of them helped in specific ways. But, you know, it just takes time. Um, but uh, more, more importantly, I don't want to minimize anybody's story. I mean, anybody can have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, whether they deployed or they haven't deployed. I mean, it, like I said, you feel like your life is threatened and you're being f- forced to do things that you cannot control. That That is the recipe for PTSD. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, I, I reached out and I, I went to uh, behavioral health at the time. And uh, the woman, I could tell that she was versed in behavioral health in clinical psychology and specifics of psychoanalysis that I don't care to study. Uh, I could not help myself at the time, but I realized within 10 minutes of talking to her that she could not help me. Someone has to have experienced something very similar to you to help you through it. I mean, that's the same thing in Zen Buddhism, right? Like mm-hmm. being a bodhisattva, that's what healers really are is their boat is office. Like they, they acquire energy and experience to help others up to the point that they're at. Mm-hmm. And that's what really good therapists, specifically behavioral health therapists or psychotherapists do is, is they are just this muse to help you get past even where they are. And so, because they have intentions of why they're doing it. Why, why do they want to be a healer? Right? Because they want to maybe prove to themselves that they can help others. They, helping others heals yourself. You know, there's all these different things, you know, but uh, I don't want to minimize anybody's experiences, but I've, I've seen it all, you know, and, and uh, um, you know, I, I had a lot of difficulties. I knew that, that she couldn't help me, not because she wasn't a good person, but her experiences, I think, were more directly tied to maybe sexual abuse or domestic abuse. And I was I was dealing with surreal, you know, physical trauma. And, and I wanted, I wanted someone to help me unpack this. And, and, uh, one of the things that the, the military specifically uses to deal with this stuff is what they call cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT. Yep. And, and, uh, a lot of times, uh, what the military specific, the military docs in general, they lean towards, um, and you might be able to help me, Whitney. It's it, but it's a uh, where you just tell your story over and over and over. What's the it's uh, uh, exposure therapy. exposure therapy? And yeah. but that's difficult, and I don't agree with it. I've I've gone through it. So basically, like imagine if you were a woman and you were raped. Well, let's just have you tell your story every other day to me, in a different way until you get desensitized to that. I don't think that exposure therapy is the right way to go for trauma for people. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I did go through months of it. Are you maybe thinking of EMDR? No, 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 no. Okay, you're not no, even no, there no. yet. Okay. No, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, EMDR is the ticket for me. Uh, and what is that? EMDR, what's it specifically stand for? Oh, it's basically um, EMDR is it's the rapid eye deset, desensitize rapid eye movement desensitization. Do you remember the EMDR um, itself? It's the E. Uh, who cares? Everybody no, just look it up later no, on your phone. But, no, but, <laughs> but like but EMDR is 
Yeah, oh, yeah. Incredible. But yeah, so. It, it takes a long time to get to the place where you can actually do the the EMDR. Like in my personal experience, it took me a year and a half of talk therapy to create a safe space in my mind mm. that I was ready to go gotcha. there. You know what I mean? Like, and sometimes they do it very differently. Though, yeah. Yeah. I like, mean, it, it's, welcome to EMDR and we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Right there, there's, you know, <laughs> there's as no many reason. flavors under the sun as there is ice cream. I mean, yes, yes. And yes, even yes. with that, it, it has to do with, you know, the, the relationship between the therapist and the client or you pulled it up with eye movement, desensitization yeah, there we and go. reprocessing. Thank yes, you. Yep. EMDR. So basically the way that I explain this to people, and this is just my, I am not a psychotherapist, but I did stay at a holiday Inn last night. So, but, but just, I mean, so I, it's, it's, it's really benefited me. I really think that EMDR is a way to go uh, with, for many reasons, but uh, uh, basically, you know, when you, you are dreaming at night and you wake up in the middle of the night and you remember your dream. Mm-hmm. But then you get up to go take a piss, drink a glass of water, go let the dog out or some shit, and then you go lay back down. You don't remember anything about your dream. You don't even remember where to begin your dream. That's where EMDR is beneficial. Because remember I said I was experiencing things that I couldn't process. So all of those moments get stuck in my head like a broken record. I can't process them. They're just there. So, so obviously sights and sounds are programmed into those sensations, thoughts, and memories. The scream of the helicopter, right? That, that scream of the turbine, you know, that every time I would hear that afterwards, I'm just seeing people ripped apart or I'm seeing, I'm blaming myself for grief every time I'm in the helicopter with that screaming sound. Because, you know, I was exper- I, I I've sat on men that have died my arms in the back of a stuffed helicopter with that screaming turbine you know, feeling like their blood and, you know, their feces cold up against my skin, soaking through my clothes, you know. It's like, so like those sensations and those things are forced into a, a, a memory capsule. And anytime that any peripheral sensation comes up of that, I immediately go to that grief moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing is like, if you remember your father's cologne and you remember the, the loving warmth of your father, like that's the same fucking thing or the perfume of a, of a beautiful woman, you know, it's just, it's the same thing. You know, it's just, those are unprocessed moments or processed moments. And so what EMDR allows you to do is in a waking conscious state, access those, those memories that have not been processed. And so they do that through eye movement that where you know, eye movement, blah, 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 EMDR. But basically as your eyes are moving back and forth, it simulates the left and right aspect of your brain. That's why whenever you're in REM and sleep, it's, it's going into that state within your brain. And so it's forcing the subconscious and the conscious mind to meld. And we can really go down a rabbit hole literally if you want to with this stuff. But, uh, um, the same thing when we were talking about microdosing psilocybin, that's the exact same thing. So what is, serotonin and psilocybin do they they are mixing the conscious and the subconscious brain any plant-based medicine whether it's you know cbd thc uh, psilocybin all these things that we're kind of coming out of the dark ages with as far as evilizing these things you know Mm -hmm. because of political beliefs and shit you know but they have a place and they have a place uh for creatives you know like i deal with it every day uh in a creative space trying to use creativity as a commodity um judgment is the lack of creativity, right? And so anytime I'm trying to be creative, if judgmental conscious thoughts come in there, it just fucks up the whole recipe, you know? So 
Um, even Benjamin Franklin thought about this shit. And so obviously all those guys, you know, they were way into the cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. But they would also do these other techniques that are very similar to EMDR. Benjamin Franklin, you know, the great fucking inventor of all these fucking things, you know, um, you know, Thomas Edison, they all use these specific techniques, but one of them was, uh, they would hold these steel balls in their hand and they'd move them around and all night they would think about a problem. And whenever they would drop them, because they were falling asleep, they would wake up and they would remember what they were thinking about, pick up the balls and think, keep thinking about the problem. So they're effectively just doing EMDR with those same things, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've found, you know, quite a bit of healing with EMDR. Uh, one of the things we can get back to the spooky side of all this shit. Uh, there was a therapist uh, that I was seeing uh, and she she's a brilliant therapist. Uh I was lucky enough within Pararescue, we have this like unlimited budget. So we can, I mean, we have our own strength trainers, fucking hot tubs, massage therapists, shrinks, everything, you know? And so we outsource everything. And uh, we ran into uh, Dr. Carrie Elk of the Elk Institute. And she was known within many of the elite within special operations to be the psychotherapist, you know? And the military wants to invest money in this because they can get more money out of us. You know, they, they can get more longevity out of us if they fix us, you know. And so, they take care of you. yeah, so we d developed a thing called HPO, Human Performance Optimization, just fancy wording for keep our guys healthy and doing the job. And uh, and so we basically outsourced Carrie Elk. She's a wonderful woman. And she did a therapy session with me that's EMDR. And she just, she doesn't want to look at you doing this. She's like, just look at my hand. And you're just sitting there just like you are. And you're just following her hand. And she's like, think of this thought, this trauma. Think of that. And she does that for about 30 seconds. And then what are you thinking about now? And she just played this, you just play a game, you know. And at some point, if trust is in the relationship and you feel safe, you kind of lead yourself down this subconscious rabbit hole. It might take a bunch of weird turns, but you just trust where it goes. And it's going to end up somewhere pretty fucking interesting if you just kind of hold on. Uh, but um, she's extremely effective and she's helped many, many, many of my teammates as well as other, you know, special operations combat vets and just throughout the gamut, any combat veteran, she'll treat them for free if, if you reach out to her. Uh, but um, And if I'm understanding that correctly, it's like a stream of consciousness, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so you'll start with maybe a traumatic memory and then maybe that'll yeah, lead for to me, the I mean, just, just use my story that we've talked about, uh, blaming myself for my son's anoxic brain injury. Hold that. We do that. Next thing you know, I'm in a, in a, in a fucking trench with a guy ripped in half, mm -hmm. you know, next thing you know, I'm wrestling my dad. You know, it's like there, there is, there is, uh, there is someone at the controls there. I just can't put them all together. And that allows you, for instance, uh, during uh, uh, the time that I was doing all this EMDR, I was trying to separate myself from the military. And I was at a point in my career, I had like over 20 years, I had like 22, 23, 24. I finished with 25 years in the service, but I was at the point of trying to recreate myself. And I was trying to recreate myself as a tattoo artist. And in a very simple way, I was trying to recreate myself, trying to recreate the healing that Scott, Casey, and David did for us and the men that I was responsible for. I wanted to learn to do that because that was the most healing fucking thing that ever happened to me after those events, you know, short of spending, you know, time with my loved ones, you know. Um, so, you know, all these, these, these things, um, 
so, so I'm sorry, I kind of got lost in the sauce there. Uh, but uh, so I'm trying to recreate myself as an artist. I'm tattooing myself, my friends, uh, with the help of Scott and a wonderful family of tattooers, the Yarians, uh, Deborah Yarian and Don Yarian that own Eagle River Tattoo and their whole family of tattooers. Mm-hmm. Uh, all their kids tattoo on Oh, it's just it's incredible. It's crazy, but it's all the, the the synchronicity of me meeting them and just all that is just really bizarre. But uh, um, the point I was trying to make is like I'm obsessively painting roses. I mean, whenever you, you are uh, a new tattooer, let alone an old tattooer, you, like you obsessively paint things to try to figure out things. You know, you're just kind of articulating a language through pen and ink. A lot of times you do this with watercolor because it's very like tattooing. It's cheap and it's it's very like like tattooing in a way that it's it's permanent. It's it's intentional when you're doing it, blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm obsessively and I don't know why. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm obsessively painting roses bathed in moonlight and I can't fucking explain it. And it's so obsessive to the point. It's like, uh, close encounters of the third kind with the mashed potatoes. Yeah. Like I'm just fucking doing this, man. I could show you archives of these fucking roses and, and, and peonies and blah, blah, blah. Florals bathed in fucking moonlight. Just fucking ate up with it, man. And I was doing an EMDR session with one of the docs on base. And uh, it's like, where does this take you? Boom, we stop. And then you talk a little bit. You hold that thought and you keep going. And we get to a point and he's like, where does this take you? And I'm like, I'm almost trying to make some shit up so we can just keep going with this. But I'm like, I just say whatever comes to my lips. And I was like, a young army guy in Bulldog Bike crawled to me and he'd been shot through the abdomen with a 50 cal. And this is middle of the night. This is like midnight, full moon out. And uh, I lift up his shirt and it's pulsing, pulsing venous blood out of his abdomen. And he's just telling me he's cold. And I just fucking went pale white because that was the rose. And that's fucked up, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? I could have gone a lifetime of fucking obsessing with roses. But after that fucking day, there's no obsession with fucking painting those. I understand the, the connection of why I'm so obsessed with it because I'm trying to understand that, the beauty and the horror of that. Like that guy fucking died right there. And it's like he's talking to me and I'm looking at that. And he's just telling me he's cold. You know, it's just fucked up. But that that's EMDR. That's the power of EMDR. Um, but so now years later, I'm still being treated with this uh, brilliant, psychotherapist Carrie Elk, Dr. Carrie Elk. And uh, she's doing this thing and she's like, and she knows me pretty well now because I've somewhat become a face within pararescue and helping uh, call the need for the HPO program, the human performance optimization program that's getting these psychotherapists to talk to, to other young pararescuemen and being very outspoken. Like I'm going around the, the, the world pretty much and telling my story of Bulldog Bite uh, not only the, of the the intense nature of it, but of the meanings that I've found from my experiences of doing a career within special operations. And uh, she says to me, just candidly, she just stops everything. She's like, Roger, I have never met anyone so unwilling to accept mercy, love, or grace in their life. And I was just like, fuck. And so the reason that meant so much to me is because Scott Campbell, Casey, meeting those guys, 
and them tattooing us when they did. I never felt like I was their friends. But what was funny is like every time I'd go and visit Scott and Casey, they would roll the red carpet out for us, man. Put us up in a loft in Soho. Have us meeting, you know, A-list stars uh, tattooing us. And I mean, Scott Campbell, he's like $1,000 shop, you know, minimum. You want me to put a fucking dot on you, 1000 bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I love it. And I mean, people are fucking stacked for ha- for him to do that dot, you know. And he's just like, I want to fucking tattoo you, man. I want to enable you in your life, any fucking thing. Let me help you. And I was really unwilling to do that. And as a PJ, you know, we go all over the world and we have to do all these medical currencies. I was in New York and Scott owned a studio at the time called Save Tattoo in Brooklyn, New York. It's a pretty uh, uh, high tier tattoo shop. I mean, you know, some of the, the most skilled dedicated tattooers in the world go through there and are a part of that family. So it's really, to me, it's just like the Mecca of tattooing. It's like a pinnacle, yeah. And uh, there's a Deb story I've got to tell you that's fucking spooky. Oh, it just, I know it just all gets, about Deb's weird New York shit, but yes. But this gets, this gets even <laughs> spookier with the, the, the Yarians. It's just, it's just fucking creepy. Uh, but I'm out there. Uh, we were doing cadaver labs. You know, we have to do a lot of uh, what we call wet tissue or live tissue training. Sometimes we do them with animals. Sometimes we do them with humans that will reanimate with fluids to treat them and do um, traumatic amputations, all kinds of training. We're doing this in uh, in New York, in Manhattan. And uh, on my time off, I would go and, and be somewhat mentored by Scott Campbell at Save Tattoo. And I remember sitting outside of that cafe. There was a cafe down the street from Union Street there in Brooklyn. And a wave of mercy, love, and grace, man fucking hit me and it was like a fucking freight train and it was just like i accepted it because I, I couldn't believe that my story cared enough that these people like stephanie thomas virginia elwood anderson luna scott campbell all these people there they they care about me and my story it, it it's almost it was an affirmation that i needed to hear about the trauma that i had experienced you know or affirming that it was surreal because that's pretty surreal to be hanging out with these fucking people, you know. And they just want to be around me and help me. But And so I was going to go tattoo one of my dear PJ friends at Saved with all of their help while they stood there and gave me all the, their fucking secrets they could. So it was like the culmination of, of everything at that point. Yeah, it's just, it's just fucking overwhelming. And so that's what kind of tattooing means to me is that mercy, love, and grace. Like accepting the virtuous risk, right? It, uh, but so the weird Deb story. So one of the things that Scott told me to do, he wasn't like this omnipresent mentor. He was just like reduce variable and meet other tattooers. That's all he fucking told me. So I walked down the street less than a mile from here is, is Don and Deborah's shop, the Yarians, the Eagle River tattoo. And I just go in there. I'm like, Hey guys, so I'm a fucking PJ. And I met Scott Campbell and he tattooed me. I tattooed my legs, check it out. And I just wanted to meet you guys and cool. And they're just like, uh, fuck. You have no idea what you just walked into here. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're they're like, uh, that's a pretty incredible story. It's just fucking weird. And it's like, they, they put me off or anything, but that's just a lot to take in. And they were tattooing people. And, um, but what makes the story even more interesting 
is Don was a career army ranger. So he knows what a fucking PJ is. I mean, how many tattooers would know what a pararescue men are? There's very few, right? Mm-hmm. And so he knew full well what, what I was fucking saying. And Deborah had never met Scott, but she knew everyone at the Save Family. In fact, she was going to go tattoo at Save Tattoo the next fucking weekend in Brooklyn. She had never been there before. Never been there before. She goes there, blah, blah, blah. I come back in. I kind of tuck my tail between my legs, come back in there. Hey, man, just fucking tattoo me then. Like, tattoo my face. I don't care. You know? let's, just, <laughs> let's, just, let's just talk. Let's just they talk. They do not like and doing that's, that either, but they're awesome. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the way, you know, you want to you wanna get involved in tattooing. Well, then go get your whole fucking body tattooed by somebody. And mm-hmm. you're, you're guaranteed to develop a relationship, you know. I mean, that's the secret to anything is just fucking immerse yourself in it. But with yourself at risk with yourself at loss. Like, like that's literally your skins in the game, right? Like, I mean, so um, that's what I started doing. I started going there and getting tattooed a whole fucking lot. And I started, I kept tattooing. And at that point, Don and Deborah, uh, they're wonderful people, but uh, it's a sacred thing to them. They don't just open that shit up to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't. And I mean, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but that's actually what made you years ago when I heard about you super interesting to me because there's oh yeah Deborah speaks very loudly about it and with poise she's like I don't know anybody anything this is my <laughs> gift this is for my family oh, yeah. and it's my tradition and I'm gonna pass it to them and when I when Don was tattooing me and he was telling uh me about you and I was like what the fuck is going on here because <laughs> I was like but because I understood like the brother in a little bit but I was like this is odd because I just yeah. had been a part of this like but I was very intrigued and very interested. And he had nothing but high things to say, but it was just an interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very unlike it's them very to just do that. Them, yeah. yeah, and so I think that uh, there was too many fucking similarities. Like Don, uh, Deborah's husband, who's been tattooing over thirty years. Deborah has been tattooing over forty fucking years. Think about that as a woman, mm-hmm. as your sole profession, tattooing for. I mean, she is in an elite category of tattooers. Yeah. And uh, and she deserves that. And so does her husband. I mean, her husband, Don, is an amazing tattoo artist, an amazing street shop tattoo artist. I mean, and, and he, uh, I couldn't have asked for better circumstances to learn from them. But I mean, so my, my, my point was, is like, well, maybe I lost my point. You know, one thing that keeps getting brought up is uh, spooky situations or as I guess I'm beginning to understand it, it's kind of like Providence. You know, it's it's certain things happening and the stars aligning. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, man. So to fall back on that mercy, love, and grace. Um, for instance, you know, I got, I got involved with this diving. I'll just throw another spookyism. I'm at Save Tattoo, and this is years later. Like, I'm I'm not a. I mean, I never feel like I'm a bona fide tattoo artist. Like the minute you feel like you're you're anything, like you're just a piece of fucking shit. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, seriously. literally, yeah, yeah. literally, you know, like I'm even like. Like how validate is Tom Cruise as an actor, right? But mm-hmm. now, he, you know, we I think we'd all agree he's maybe like a little full of himself, right? Not to use a celebrity. I mean, I don't know the fucking dude at all and I don't follow any of that stuff. But I would think that, you know, maybe someone like that could get full of themselves. And then it's just like, fuck you, man. Yeah. As soon as you like that. But if you're always just like, no, man, you know, like I suck. I'm just trying here, man. You know. To stay hungry. Yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, not proving, constantly proving something to yourself, but, but to treat it as if, it is your meditation, like the, your subconscious effort is what's happening. You and know? even if 
at the point that you think you have mastered something, then maybe that means it's time to move on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. So the, the diving thing. So like I'm tattooing at saved, like as a tattooer, like they're like, Hey, come here and tattoo. And I'm like, all right, cool. You know, like I'm there and I'm tattooing some people. And, uh, I mean, I'm paying for my trip with the tattoos I'm doing. So I guess I'm a tattooer, right. You know? And so I'm there, but, uh, one of my buddies, a guy named Rudy Reyes. And so as a reconnaissance instructor, there was a guy named Rudy Reyes that I trained. And this guy, very eccentric human being, uh, one of the most capable human beings I've ever met in my life. Um, I was his instructor and he was a very humble, capable person. And uh, eccentric is is an understatement. And uh, he was raised uh, by... He was he was adopted. Him and his brothers were adopted by this man who claimed to be the last known Chinese samurai. And his religion was Qigong or Kung Fu. Okay, yes. Yep. Chinese Kung Fu, which is Qi, like Qigong. Uh-huh. And I mean, as a dumbass white kid from Dallas, to me, that's uh, Kung Fu theater shit. You know, I mean, that's Kane. That's Kane walking the earth and shit, you know. Mm-hmm. But here was this guy that he could literally, this is a human being that can literally do like a one-handed handstand on a pull-up bar and just do reps touching his nose to the bar. Ooh, um, Rudy. Yeah, and I mean, he he's a extremely capable human being. And he'll talk to you. He's like, oh, no, no. Uh, yeah, that's cheese. Like, let me show you this exercise. And he'll show you this exercise. Your hands start dripping with sweat just doing this silly exercise. And you're like, fuck, man, I don't know shit about life. <laughs> If this guy can talk to me for 10 minutes and do some David Blaine shit on me, man. Yeah. And uh, I was intrigued with him and he was very intrigued with me. We hit it off. Uh, you know, we, we all, what is it? There's three selves, the the person we think we are, the person uh, who others think we are, and then the person we really are, some shit. I don't you know. Spin that however you want. Google it later. But it's like we all see each other through a really odd veil. And I've always been this very incapable physical person but i mean here i am like when i met rudy i was in one of the a lead instructor in marine reconnaissance and i was like this shaolin monk mojo fucking trainer i mean i walked around with a bag of bones and fucking coral and shit and i would do shaman shit to you man i mean it was that was like i was way into this stuff Mm -hmm. and um i mean i was on the marine corps triathlon team i could run five minute miles do 30 pull-ups you know swim open ocean miles in under 20 minutes. I mean, I was, I felt I was Olympic caliber triathlete at the time, you know, and, um, Rudy and I really hit it off, really hit it off physically. I kind of taught him the do's and don'ts of swimming. We would go and do breath hold, I could do, uh, um, um, free diving out in, uh, La Jolla Cove in the middle of the night, pulling ourselves down the chains, and stuff out there, you know, and that's cold fucking water and just yeah. do it out in a speedo. Just go out there and fucking feel it, you know. And uh, we would do cool shit together, you know. And uh, we really enjoyed each other that way. Uh, but then, you know, long story short, I had a missing block of time with him. I went on to do pararescue. He did amazing things post 9-11. Uh, they made Generation Kill, a movie, which was based off of a Rolling Stones thing. Ro- reconnaissance guys within special operations, especially in the nineties, they were some pipe hitting motherfuckers. I mean, that's the real deal. And I felt like I definitely was a big part of enabling that. Like I, I, I read as many 
uh, native culture, shamanistic warrior training things as I could and applied it to everything I could, you know, from uh, Marine Corps reconnaissance sniping techniques to scout swimmer techniques to combat diving. And I, I would force guys to do native culture shamanistic training while doing that stuff. And I poured over literature and books and just poured over the Iliad and the Odyssey, Moby Dick, every fucking thing. And uh, that was my religion. Reconnaissance and special operations was my religion. And Rudy was not only a star pupil, but he exceeded me in many ways. And, and uh, I was just thankful to share the time and the friendship with him, you know, when all was said and done. Mm-hmm. Uh, those men that I trained are now the sergeant majors of MARSOC, uh, Force Reconnaissance, the legendary fucking dudes in that culture now that are the players, the top of all of that, uh, were not only my peers, uh, but my students of that, that, that time. And uh, uh, so there was a block of time there that I didn't see Rudy for like 10 years. I get this cold fucking call. I'm tattooing in Brooklyn. And save tattoo. And my buddy's like, hey, fucking Raj, it's Rudy, man. I need to fucking hit you up. Uh, I'm in Manhattan right now. Where are you at? And he knows that I live in Alaska. I'm like, I'm in fucking New York, bro. <laughs> and he's like, you're in fucking New York. He's like, meet me here. And so I meet him there. Meet this other cat. His name's Jim Ritterhoff. They basically pitched me this deal. Like, hey, we want to get all of the, our brothers, man, all the special operations guys. And we want to get them in marine conservation at the elite level like Jacques Cousteau, Sylvia Earle, Ocean X, like, like level of fucking ocean conservation. And I'm like, cool, bro. I'm like, where, what are we doing first? And like, we're going to raise some money and then we're going to go do a training iteration and we're going to do this stuff in the Cayman Islands. And I was mm. like, fucking cool, man. And I'm like, well, if you do this, uh, I've got to involve my younger son, Oz. I've got to involve my family. And then things being what they are, you know, you cannot invite an elephant trainer in your living room if you don't have room for the elephant. I got Carrie Elk involved because these are all significant combat veterans. And now we're mixing them with a bunch of hacky sack fucking players. <laughs> and it's like, you know, we need to be able to, if these guys have fucking breakdowns, or at least, at least let's have them talk about their experiences because we want this to be cathartic. We want, we don't want to fucking beat the dead horse about, oh, I'm fucking seal and... Blibbity, blibbity, blibbity. I don't want you to do that, but I want us to speak about our emotions and our experiences because we need to move past them together. And that's what this is about. Mm-hmm. I want you to take those experiences and let's help heal the earth to heal ourselves. Let's champion the things that can't champion themselves as a way of, of community and, and helping ourselves. And so I became a big part of that with my friend Rudy. And now we've got like 12 teammates that we've trained and that's what you saw whenever you brought up the thing with the turtle the thing. It's not, it's not just turtles. It's just, no, it's, it's so marine conservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I can definitely. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's as powerful as, uh, you know, um, so Whitney mentioned earlier, we were uh, talking about this. Uh, uh, There's an ABC and NBC had done a documentary on me and my son, Oz, because I'm like, Oz is coming with me on every fucking Force Blue deployment there is, you know, because mm-hmm. he's now like the mascot of Force Blue. And, uh, you know, our saying is a mercy, love, and grace, right? Like right. with this uh, whole thing. But so uh, they have paired us with the tier one of marine conservation, whether we're on Capitol Hill lobbying for ocean conservation funds and lobbying. 
you know, because everything's so polarized right now, you won't listen to, you know, Tammy, the hacky sack player, the vegan hacky sack player that's crying to you about the fucking dying turtles. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. you know, what that staunch Republican fucking senator will do, he'll listen to a Silver Star recipient talk about how I see the face of God in that fucking turtle and that we need to fucking help these things, you mm-hmm. know? And so it's, it, that dichotomy is powerful. And, and what being involved in, in that program of force blue has taught me is the way to healing is dichotomy. You know, if you think you're some tough fucking asshole, well, what's the opposite of that? Right. Go fucking volunteer at a special needs camp for free all fucking summer. Find the middle of, of your humanity. Where is that? Because we all have it in us. On the outside, you know, we're, we're these polarized people, but that's not the reality of life. You know, people, we, we have the entire rainbow in us. And, and I think that we should live our lives to find our dichotomies and live them to the fullest, you know. And that's the power of the force blue thing. I think that was the power that drew me to art and to tattooing because it was like this life of just action and no thought. And then I had to contemplate that and try to express that, you know, whether it's through creativity, through tattooing, through iconography and imagery or writing a fucking book. Like I haven't tried to do any of that. And that's the spooky shit of it is, is I think that grief or just, you know, our lives, you know, but I can, I can use grief just as the, an emotion that is easy to talk about. Right. So grief has to express itself. All of our emotions have to express themselves. Our life experiences have to express themselves. And it's the same force that causes a flower to bloom. Like there is a, you know, a morning, an evening, and a fucking nighttime to our lives. And that's the same thing that a flower does. And and for some, whatever reason, like I'm just in this blooming aspect of my life. My life has to articulate itself. Like I'm not me. Like, I mean, who gives a fuck about my me personally? But my experiences and my humanity have to be expressed through itself. And I think that that's the spooky thing about meeting all these fucking people and having them help me articulate what I have to say, even to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, to crude the magazine or, or the podcast, whatever it is. It's like that is God, whether you want to believe that's a Christian God, a Buddhist God, a fucking Hindu God, whatever the fuck that is, that is life expressing itself. That is my humanity expressing itself through all these means, whether they're technological, through written word, through someone staring at a fucking tattoo, whatever that is, that's, that is the will of God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or just the will of the universe, the will of humanity, the will of consciousness, the will of life, aware of itself, whatever you want to expl- explain that, that, that is what it is. But the real fucking spooky thing when I'm just sitting by myself is, like, I haven't tried to do any of this, man. I've, and I think that's what sustains it, right? Like, because the minute that I try to do this for myself or that I'm doing this for self-benefit or same thing in combat, and I, and I have to reflect on that, you know, because it's like I, I spent so much time just meditating or reflecting on my experiences to try to find the meaning or the value in them. And I found that the only meaning and and value in those severe, surreal circumstances, your intention and your resolve, your equipment's going to fail you. Everything's going to go to shit, but your intentions become very paramount. Your resolve becomes very paramount. Like for instance, you know, I've gone into other, you know, uh, highly, highly fucking trained 
U.S. fighters on the ground. And they're completely fucking panicked. I'm not panicked yet. And I'm, I'm like, well, why are they panicked? Because they're, they're, they've gone beyond their, their intentions. Their intentions were to do, bring this fight, go kill the fucking enemy, come back, maybe drink, drink a Mr. Pib. Their, their intentions were not to see their buddy get fucking ripped in half with an RPG and their weapons get destroyed and they're out of fucking ammo and they're getting overrun and they're fighting hand to hand with these motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's beyond human projection, you know? And so not, not that, any of us are any better or worse because I've seen the finest of fucking courageous men in combat shut the fuck down and no one has the right to judge them because it's like that is all within us. You know, maybe his view of his mortality has changed. He's seen that tiger smile to where it, it's now he's seeing his fucking son. He's seeing his wife and maybe this young guy that wants to talk shit or, or wants to judge that. He doesn't have a wife or son. So it's just like it's all spectrums of just humanity within there. No one has the right to judge that, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, this expression, this, this this whole expression of it is is bizarre. But I think what I was going to say is like when a person thinks of self-preservation in mortal combat, everybody's going to fucking die. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a power to selflessness in the face of our own mortality. I think that's what makes people survive. You know, people that become selfish die. And I think that people are that are willing to give of themselves at the precipice, they are the ones that live. I read a quote, and I'm gonna fucking butcher it, but it, <laughs> it, it talks about it talks about the sailor on the precipice of death can only save himself by risking his life to go for the line to jump for the rope, you know, to risk his life, to save his life. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's very true in the most dire of circumstances. But even in a more subtle way, turn the volume of that way down. And that turns back to our initial conversation about comfort or discomfort. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the same thing. It, it's, just, it's just the volume's a little different. Um, but I mean... Random acts of violence happen, and, and, I, and I have struggled with knowing that other people were acting selfless, but they were killed, you know. And so, but again, you know, we, we have to seek meaning, and that's just my humanity trying to express its experiences, you know, through all this stuff, you know. So I mentioned earlier that I had a question about the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. And in his first story, he talks about the things his friends and fellow soldiers carried with them. Most of it was out of necessity, he says. Guns, food, pocket knives, water. But everyone also had something sentimental that reminded them of home. Did you ever carry anything like that with you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we're sitting in my garage. And so I, I'm really into voodoo and metaphysics, man. You know, I, I really am. You know, there's, if, if you believe in something, it's it's true. You know, and that, that's the power of, of, you know, our will, you know. Manifestation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it's silly as hell. It's very silly. But you see that banana? It's a banana. It's just like a weird, like a silly little thing hanging up right there. It's like a stuffed animal banana thing. On your pull-up bar? Yeah. Uh, I had that in my backpack the whole time as a PJ, like my entire. And so my wife and son sent it to me, I think, on one of my deployments. And it's just I just carried it. I've also carried a lock of my wife's hair 
that she tied in a little thing, I would keep it in my pocket. Um, I'm I'm just like that. I, I carry a little juju. I, I don't I don't know I, because it's like empowering, you know. And uh, the Native Americans used to do the same thing, you know. Like uh, you know they would they would you know find little things. I mean, I mean even if you want to take something is 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 uh, uh, you know traumatic is like taking someone's scalp. You know, I mean, like, you know, taking power from things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a lot of things uh, that, that that I would carry like that. And I mean, all of them had different value. You know, it's like context adds value. Same thing. I mean, just to, to project that to tattoos, like you could get something that just says I'm an asshole, you know, and that would be the silliest tattoo. But some of my favorite tattoos, like my younger son, Oz, tattooed me. He just wrote his name mm-hmm. and his penmanship is pretty serial killer man i mean let alone his ability to tattoo yeah but the context of him tattooing me that's beautiful man. Mm-hmm. you know and, and so um you know those things that we carry with us you know it's all contextual you know that juju is as a weight of the context you know and and uh um i'm trying to think i mean i've got there's a lot of things here in this garage and I feel relationships are that way with me now because, you know, like Scott and Casey and all those guys, meeting them at such a volatile period within my life was a, a, a vulnerable time in which they did. And they were such a sledgehammer of catharsis that uh, that relationship is contextual. And so Scott designing the patch for the book cover you know, mm-hmm. where it says mercy and grace, you know, with Scott and Casey and David and those men at that time represent mercy, love and grace to me and the willingness for me to accept them into my life, you know, uh, is healing to me. And Scott made a whole bunch of patches. You can look right behind me. Those are, these are all conversations of patches that Scott made and they're just different conversations, you know, that we had here and there. And one of them is accept kindness and grace. Um, but even the, 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 the cover of the book is a skull with lightning bolts and a scorpion and that skull with the lightning bolts is God's grace. Right. And, and, and that scorpion is kindness because, you know, those things, you know, I heard a long time ago that enlightenment is at the tip of our nose, but we're just too dumb to see it. And that's kind of like scorpion presenting you with kindness mm-hmm. or grace, you know? So it's like, those are the things that are powerful. It's, it's the dichotomy. Roger, this conversation is so, uh, it's a little, it's a little spooky for me. Just, you know what I mean? Like doing these interviews and having these chats with people, it's like, you know, you seek out these things and, and you go after them and you go find these people or these ideas. And it's like, you, you never really understand what you're actually like getting into essentially. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't know what's happening. Yeah. You don't. And um it's a spooky conversation in the good sense of like this is uh it's pretty real shit and talking about accepting like love and grace and kindness and other people's like value of you. Mm-hmm. That's a big that's a tough one, you know, and I think you you keep bouncing back on that. Like yeah, there's... what why do I matter? Why am I what about me matters? And it's like it's hard to Yeah, listening to the affirmations. Mm-hmm. You know. Like listening to the affirmations of it, there's a another spooky story that I've got I've got to tell. But there's a guy. Uh, uh, I was at a barbecue, and uh, this is just two doors down. I was at a barbecue, and uh, 
they invited me over. My wife and kids were in Texas and I was here cause I had to be on alert as a PJ or something. I didn't have leave or something. And, uh, they invite me over and there was a, a kind of a, a kind of quiet brooding, uh, middle-aged athletic guy. And he's just asking me, he's like, Hey, uh, so Roger, uh, you just got back from deployment. And I was like, yeah, he's like, do you see combat? And he's kind of asking me, but it, he's really just kind of asking in a very genuine, but kind of almost offensive way. You like know? antagonistic? Yeah. And so I, I tell him that I get deep like where we are right now, but I can't, I'm not as well, my thoughts aren't well formed and I'm just kind of telling him these things. And he realizes he's like, oh shit, you know, real recognizes real. And, and uh, he was like, hey, listen, man, I'm doing these things called portraitures. And I would love to do one on you if you don't mind. And I was like, yeah, what's a portraiture? And basically he, what he does is he takes really good photographs, amazing photographs, and then he writes a bio about his experiences with you and then shares those photos. And this is like Guggenheim level shit, you know. And uh, his name's Joe Yelverton. And uh, he's, he's an amazing Alaskan that goes around the state and does portraitures of people amazing and, and he's so insightful but real knows real like we we're saying like he's been there and, and so i didn't know any of this and so i'm just like sure man let's just do it you know and and so he's like uh i would like to so i'm like well, let's just meet at the pj section so i get him on base and i show him all the crazy shit there man I mean, like doom buggies machine guns crazy weird scuba gear i mean just really crazy shit and uh I spent like four hours with him. I showed him everything that we have, you know. And at the end of the day, he's like, Raj, this stuff's pretty cool, but I don't really give a shit about any of this stuff. He's like, if you got anything cool going on, just let me know. And I was like, hey, man, so uh, I'm tattooing tonight if you want to come over. He's like, you tattoo? Like, yeah, man. He's like, I'd love to come over and take some pictures of that. And so he came over and started taking photos. He took a couple and he sent them to a friend and his friend, uh, sent him to the humanities program and he got like a $20,000 grant just to follow me around and take pictures of me tattooing people. And that was incredibly powerful in a very affirming way. Like it was, it was such a strong affirmation that it, it was absolutely formative to me standing or sitting here and talking with you guys. Mm -hmm. I think that that was definitely one of the dominoes in the spectrum. And uh, one, because he's so talented. Two, he was able to articulate my story. It's very powerful to have, I mean, some people are attention whores. You know, like they'll want to do these podcasts and things like that because they want fucking attention. They're, they're, what is that, like self-promoting themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but you guys do this enough and I'm sure you see it with the people that aren't. And hopefully you seek the people that are, it's just like the universe is trying to propagate their story, not them. Mm -hmm. Like it's just the universe is doing this. And I definitely feel that's the the wave that I'm on. And not only you, but Joe was a pivotal piece in this. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, basically he took these amazing photos and he was able to articulate with not only photo, but with his brilliant writing. Like he is an amazing photographer, but he is just as talented in his writing. And uh, he was able to articulate my story and he wrote that story into a small synopsis of his portraitures, which he called the Anonymous Samurai. And his writing was so poignant that it motivated a small culture of pararescue men to attempt to write as well. They were fashioning themselves after like Hunter S. Thompson, just these really powerful humans with so much humanity in them to write these amazing things. 
And, um, and again, I mean, so that the, 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 the ripple, yeah, that ripple is what caused <laughs> me to write the book. Right. Because that led Don Reardon, who I was, uh, just a cast of characters in him writing Jimmy's book, the, the PJ that got shot in the head and Joe being here, taking photos of me tattooing men that I've served in combat with that are traumatic amputees and stuff. I'm tattooing him here in this garage for like 14 hours straight kind of deal. And he's Joe's photographing the whole thing. I have a, a poem of uh, an anonymous samurai up there and he, that's it right there. It hasn't moved or, changed from Joe writing that, you know, yeah. and, uh, that is the whole precept somewhat of Warriors Creed, the book and, and, uh, these stepping stones amongst things. And I mean, again, to continue the spooky domino effect, I got involved with the force blue. They, they, uh, they documented our exploits when we did the Cayman islands and we did all these other, uh, when hurricanes come through, they destroy coral reefs and we can, I can lift up thousand, pound corals and concrete them back to the subsurface and the coral saved and blah, blah, blah. Uh, these people were documenting this and that's a very, uh, a talented man, just as talented, you know, like, you know, you got, you know, Joe Yelverton, you got all these extremely Don Reardon, all these extremely powerfully talented Alaskans that are focusing their attention on me and my story. And again, I'm not asking for it. You know, it's like the universe is pushing this stuff. Bobby Sheehan and these guys started doing these documentaries about force blue they're also involved in all these other humanitarian programs. Once they met me and they met Oz, my son, through Force Blue, they were like, holy shit, man. We got to get Oz and Roger involved in the stem cell project that they're doing. And so we developed this program and there was a, a provider, a stem cell provider in town that was working out of the UAA mall right next to like Sadler Furniture, this <laughs> no really way. posh chiropractor clinic. They were doing stem cell treatment there. And so these film producers are like, well, we want to film stem cell therapy and how the FDA's, you know, really kind of hamstringing the American public with regulations with the drug companies and the surgical companies and, you know, not the, you know, industrial war complex, the industrial illness complex that the country's built for itself, you know. Um, and so, and they were wanting to just basically show the benefits of stem cells and use myself and my son as an example. So they tr treated myself and my son pro bono. And this affected the provider so much. He sold his clinics and he developed a 5013C with myself called Healing Our Heroes. And this treats combat veterans pro bono with stem cells and, and uh, systemic infusion with stem cells cross the blood brain barrier. It's the only thing that they know that can treat traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. I get my buddy Jimmy Settles involved, who was shot in the head. They treat him for free. And it's like all this stuff is going on. So now we're, we're involved in this thing called Healing Our Heroes, where we are looking at plant-based medicine. So next month, we're going to fly with myself and uh, four other combat veterans to Costa Rica, and we're going to do ayahuasca ceremony <sighs> together. And they're going to document it. But it's yes. about it's about dispelling the the taboos with stuff and how do we really treat and care for combat veterans and stuff. But using them as a role model, like everybody can benefit from this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's just, again, virtuous risk always. Sometimes, I mean, I'm just seeing a lot of effect within my life just, again, because I think the universe wants to express this this thing. But, but um, I don't know where it's going to end, but 
you can find me at Eagle River Tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about healing. If somebody with PTSD is listening to this right now, what would you say to them? It's the hardest thing in the world, but you have to find a way to express yourself. No one is a threat to you or your story or your experiences. No one is a threat to your experiences. It's empowering to share them and find a way to creatively express it. Just like I'm on this podcast right now, expressing my humanity and my experiences. They have to find a way to share and express their own because healing others is healing ourselves. Grief and trauma will never go away. But making the world a better place makes it livable, you know. And there's there's truly forces of good and evil in the world, you know. And uh, we all live somewhat in the gray area of that. Um, the more severe your experiences, the more severe your expression should be. And, uh, you know, the, the world is listening like... There's some very powerful books. I mean, I don't want to be too tongue-in-cheek, but there, there's a book I read, The Alchemist. You know, I mean, it, it's an amazing book. I mean, mm -hmm. you read this in high school, you know, but if, if people haven't read it, that's an amazing story of, of growth and change and, and, and understanding your journey. You know, it's like living is causes damage, you know. Living, you don't get something for nothing. And I think that uh, tenderness comes from pain. You know, uh, people that experience loss and grief and trauma, they are the most giving, caring people because they identify with the pain and suffering. And I think that they can find catharsis in healing others by sharing their stories because their, their stories have value. All of our stories have value. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, find a way to get that vibration out there, you know, because the world needs it, you know. Uh, it's difficult, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing. I think, uh, you know, just speaking for myself or speaking for combat veterans, you know, it's just such a cliche thing nowadays to even say that stuff. But, uh, you know, in the times of past, you know, I mean, in, I mean, even in, in the generations that we can see, you know, the Vietnam era combat veterans, the Korean War veterans, the World War II, the World War I veterans, even going all the way back, say, like to, to ancient times, you know, where uh, humanity is at Greece, you know, they, they had, you know, the people of Greece, you know, they, they did a couple of things pretty cool. Like they, they had this, I think they, it was a law that if a combat veteran was speaking on the corner, you, it was your, it was law that you had to stop and listen to them. Hell, now I'd just get arrested if I stood somewhere and started screaming shit at people. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, but we do that in different ways now. I mean, the world's changed in many ways. And, and uh, you know, it, it is cliche and it's so watered down, you know, to think about these things. But uh, our stories do have impact. And we have to get past ourselves because we're our own worst enemies. You know, we'll minimize ourselves. You know, like, oh, my story is not as severe as that person or... I'm not as cool as that person and I can't say it the way that person says it. It's like, who gives a fuck, man? Don't judge yourself, you know, express yourself because that's the way the world works. You know, um, try to lose yourself, you know, to find yourself, you know, find a way to express it, you know, because the world's listening and, and 
our time is, is so limited on this planet, you know, and, and, you know, we can, we can blame others. We can blame things. I remember I used to be really angry at, at the world and the circumstances of, you know, having a special needs son and just the injustices, you know, that you see there, you know, but there's, there's an immense beauty in that too. You can champion those things, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you don't have to be Mother Teresa or anything, you know, but uh, connect with your humanity because that pain is is a lot of healing waiting to come out, you know. Uh, and all you got to find is a way to share it, you know, make that mashed potato mountain. Well, this has been unbelievable, Roger. I think this is easily going to be the longest Crude Conversations podcast that I've ever recorded. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can edit it, man. Do whatever you want. Edit to the shit out of this no, thing. I think that's no. in one of the best ways, though. Like, yeah, this no, this is, is this is great. This has been beautiful. Like, I can't really think of another way to... Yeah, feel, I feel really honored to sit and speak with you and, and share space with Cody, too. I mean, it's really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I'm, I'm honored, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. And, and thank you for, uh, I guess, help uh, spread the vibrations, you know? I don't... <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah, I just, uh, I feel thankful to uh, people even listen to me. (laughs) Well, thanks, man. Yeah, right on. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me. Cody Liska for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.